Hello, everybody. I have uh, quite the episode for you today. I have back on the show Mr. Yuri Deegan, and I feel it's important to give some background and context for the conversation, and then I have some extra thoughts at the end. I was actually going to go on a bit longer, but this intro was already way too long. Uh, I cut that down, but all the same, if you already know what's sort of going on in the, the context of uh, Yuri's Quillette article, uh, just you feel free to skip forward about 20 minutes or so and just go straight to my conversation with Yuri. And if you don't want to hear me rambling, and which might be advisable, you, you can skip the for, for that reason as well. Yuri and I talked previously about the lab leak hypothesis and his position on it and support of that uh, lab leak should be taken seriously and there should be you know, consideration and inquiry on it. For some background on what we talked about today, one avenue that really brought Yuri into the spotlight on the issue of, of lab leak as well as his uh, publications was a conversation that he had a uh, little over a year ago maybe 13 months ago with uh, Brett Weinstein on his popular podcast the Dark Horse podcast as of late uh, Yuri and Brett have had rather strong disagreements to put it lightly on the topic of vaccine safety and ivermectin, where Brett Weinstein is taking the position that ivermectin has great effect in not only treating but preventing COVID-19 illness and has some concerns about the safety of vaccines, whereas Yuri is the opposite. He thinks there is a lack of evidence with ivermectin and a lack of validity in its application. As well, he has little concerns about the safety of vaccines and has found Brett's positions to be unscientific and to be irresponsible. I guess they had some exchanges about this privately, but uh, now Yuri released a article in the publication Quillette based out of Australia, outlining his strong opposition to Brett Weinstein and his wife, uh, Dr. Heather Hying, and their positions uh, on ivermectin and vaccines. And he co-wrote the article with the journalist Claire Berlinski. Uh, before I let you dive into the chat, there is a few things I want to say about this whole topic, so bear with me, please. Apologies. One thing I'll note is over the last few months, I haven't known what to take of some of the positions that uh, Dr. Weinstein has taken on ivermectin and the vaccines. I have to note there are some people that are, you know, for their own laziness or convenience, are trying to you know completely slime him, you know, brush him away uh, for some of his uh, you know, 
political positions or whatever else have found this convenient. Um, but Brett and uh, his wife, Dr. Hine, have taken the most sober position on so many other issues with COVID from the get-go. You know, there was this charade that was played early on about, oh, we don't know enough about masks and all of that. And, and Brett was very early on to that. And he showed ability to, to, to change his mind. You know, when there weren't masks available, he was wearing a bandana for a while and just his idea under the precautionary principle, hey, like, you know, something can be better than nothing. You know, we know now, you know, bandanas or, you know, scarves and, and uh, you know, anything of that sort don't really have much effect. But, you know, he, he moved on from, from, from bandanas, for instance, but was, was trying to get ahead of this and could see the flaws in the general messaging from public health authorities and the WHO, the CDC, and so on. Him and, and uh, Dr. Hying were also very early on with uh, the harsh effects of COVID and how nobody should get this disease and don't undermine the severity. And they had lots of concerns about the long-term effects of COVID. When early on, and quite for a while after that, it took a long time to fade, how this was viewed was this rigid dichotomy, you know, deaths and recoveries and not enough attention on long-term effects and everything in between. And as you may have heard on this program, if you've listened to some of the other episodes, or you've seen elsewhere, like the issue with long COVID is a massive issue now, very severe. And they were ahead of the game on this and very attentive to all the effects from this disease. And even now, they, they still take it very seriously in its effects and don't take it lightly. I think some other people who are worried about vaccines are partial to other treatments. A lot have the proclivity of not being as worried about the virus itself or, or you know, hand wave mask use away and those usual suspects. This is not the case for Brett and Heather. Another issue they were early on is just, you know, the, the, the lack of mask policy was clunky and idiotic and irresponsible. But then when the mask policies were implemented, it was just very simple and also irresponsible. Uh, and, and they were right in pointing out that masks inside are very, very important. Masks outside in a lot of settings, particularly parks and closing off parks, is a complete and utter theatrical frivolity. And there's downwind effects from that. Like You're going to have all these restrictions that we've had to live through are austere. You don't want to have any, especially after you know that they're not worthwhile, in place still. Because you're just going to tick more people off and you're going to exhaust people off more and more and have more people to be apt over time to care less and less about the restrictions or into dissent with ire against the restrictions as a whole and are going to deflect more people around having some sort of you know 
binding collective uniform action when some of your policies are patently stupid. So as I've talked about on this show before, issues with CDC, WHO, politicians, etc., and specific issues of masks and long COVID, Brett and Heather were really nailing so many issues. And, you know, unlike me, I'm sort of in a circle and in in an organization doing it on their own uh, and getting so many of these things right. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that they're going to get everything right forever. Or what they've said previously uh, makes them somehow more apt to be right in the future. But because of what they had to say on more political matters before, they were on my radar, and I found their COVID analysis for at least the first, yeah, the, at least the first year to be very sobering and insightful and a great source of information. And so I, I'm concerned now with, with what they're, the positions that they've been taking lately and sort of confused by it as time goes on in the last few months, more and more concerned about what they're saying and what impact that's going to have on the audience who is listening to it and if there's any validity at all in the vaccine concerns and the their ivermectin support and also, you know, what effect it's going to have on them as a whole as they were, you know, possibly until very, very recently, a very powerful and strong voice on so many issues. And you just generally found it interesting how this has sort of evolved lately. So uh, with talking with Yuri, I wanted to, to get his clarification on his perspective on some of these matters. And I found some of it interesting. And uh, I think it serves another function of, you know, allowing him to uh, elaborate on some of his thoughts on the article. And when we get into it in the episode, and I'll elaborate my thought on it a bit more, but I found the, the article very, very limiting or limited and that there wasn't enough elaboration on certain points where it very much should be. And uh, this whole disagreement between Yuri and Brett has gotten really ugly. Yuri published it, and there's been a lot of harsh words from various parties online. Uh, Brett and Heather, you can find it on their Dark Horse podcast. They issued a rebuttal to the Berlinski Deegan uh, Quillette article in a two-hour episode that was released, I believe, number 87 on the program of their COVID special. And so I wanted to give Yuri a chance to respond to that uh, rebuttal and as well as elaborate some points on what I think were necessary. So not only are the topic of treatments important, vaccines important, and, you know, whether you like them or not, and you know, if you have a problem with me you know, defending Brett, as I just did on a bunch of issues and as I do in the talk, as well as being very skeptical of a lot of his claims, if you have a hardline position on Brett and you don't like that, 
well, that's just too bad. And I, I, I have a, a feeling that even, you know, talking about the issue of vaccine safety and ivermectin are so radioactive that me even talking about this issue is going to have some people outright get their panties in a knot, even though uh, the guest I have is strongly opposed to ivermectin and even more strongly opposed to the concept of the vaccines being unsafe. I shouldn't even say the concept, like the the scientific evidence and, and data that we have on hand. Is, with that opposed to seeing the vaccines as unsafe, me even just bringing this up where it should just be all so self-evident and you just don't talk about it. This is just the way it is. Don't mention it. Don't think about it. And, you know, just the, 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 the little bit of uh, polite, friendly pushback that I do give Yuri on, on some points to, to have him elaborate. This can just be, you know, striking to some people. So with all that, I this generally ties into what I think is my largest concern for, for me personally with the, the pandemic at this point. Um, before I continue, I'm going to cite a, a quote. Uh, I put it before in, in something I, I wrote earlier this year. I don't think I, I said it in any of these uh, show introductions yet. Uh, if I did, I, I apologize, but it's, it, it's, it's a, a powerful quote, and so I, I'm okay with you know, reappropriating it. It's from uh, Dr. Cornell West uh, from a 1993 debate, and that is, the low quality of public debate in the nation has to do with the degree to which dogmatism and orthodoxy and rigidity and self-righteousness trump conversation and foreclose dialogue. I think that quote, perfectly encapsulates my primary concerns at this moment in time. It has been a concern since the beginning of the pandemic, but it's just grown and grown and grown. And, and you know, I don't have a, a, a strong stance one way or the other where we're going forward. I just don't know. Like my previous guest, Dr. Eric Feigelding, he, he said this is, you know, act one of a many-act play. It could be the case, or maybe we're in the situation that, uh, you know, my, my premier here in Saskatchewan, uh, Scott Moe, or, or uh, President Joe Biden, seems to be conveying is that, you know, uh, we won, screw you virus, it's all, it's all over. So, you know, maybe if it all wraps up then, uh, a lot of these concerns will just sort of wash away. But, uh, you know, I'm not really convinced of that one way or the other. And if this does carry on, this issue that has just grown and grown and grown, I, I think we'll just keep growing more. And that's that people are living in multiple different realities. And there's so much of an interest of appealing to the in-group, being a part of a, a tribe, uh, seeing somebody opposing you that you just need to get a one-up on them and, and, and shut them down. And it becomes this zero-sum conflict, and, and less so of trying to get to the truth. This is a massive issue, and I've I seen with what was going on with this dispute 
that we we discuss in the, in this conversation is, is a component of that. I, not I don't think so much so with Yuri, but the publication that published the article, Colette, the editor in chief, Claire Lehman, has made her opposition to Brett look like just a, a vendetta. I've I've seen Yuri make some some good scientific points, and he does so with this talk we have today. I haven't seen Claire really contribute, Claire Lehman, that is, contribute anything to this conversation, just acrimony and petty demeanor. I think I just generally agree with her position on the vaccines, but I don't see her contributing anything to this broad, big issue of civil discourse. And that, that, from what I understood at the beginning when her publication started, that was her M.O. And so when this article came out and, and the way that Quillette was uh, sort of distributing it and, and marketing it, it, it just seemed to be utilized to throw mud and... A lot of their stuff has been longer, and and you know editors will you know have their uh, their 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 hand in, in whatever. Uh, that's just the nature of publications. And I I don't know who worked with Yuri and, and Claire on this one. Whether it was Colin Wright, John Kay, Claire Lehman, I I don't know. There's somebody somebody else on staff, but it, it seemed with with the polemical nature. And what might have been cut out, as Yuri and I discuss, uh, to make it more marketable as a, a hit piece. You know, that's just what I've found with how Claire Lehman and Brett have been interacting now. It's just a battle and a zero-sum battle. And this this isn't helpful. And w- within... You know, some of the groups I've been in, some of the circles I've, I've been running in throughout the, the pandemic, I've seen the same sort of thing where it's it's about appealing to the group, you know, just talking more so in platitudes and even people bringing in their political presuppositions and their, their ideology and trying to make that a component of contending with the pandemic when it's irrelevant or even making things worse. You know, trying to just fabricate the reality that they'd like it to be. And I've seen that happening you know, early on in the pandemic, when people with their, their own political agendas trying to spin things as they, they wish it to be. So we need less, I'm on Team X. We need to revamp our discourse, not keep bringing it down many levels to where it just becomes frivolous bickering. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there for now. Uh, This is probably the longest intro of it yet, and I have a lot more to say on that, and I'm going to say that for later. However, I'm going to issue that in little bits over time or something else. Uh, We'll we'll, we'll see. But I I need to give some background on this conversation. I I think that's going to make everything that we talk about make a lot more sense, and i think that uh, the, the last message that I had uh, is, is an important one. We need to worry much more about the, the nature of our discourse and uh, sense-making, if you will. That's not uh, cliche yet. 
Anyway, enjoy the talk, guys. Thanks for putting up with me. Cheers. Till next time. All right, Yuri. So I, you you wrote uh, an article recently in Quillette with uh, Claire Berlinski. Um, so to start off with that, um, how did you get uh, working on that article and how did you get collaborating with uh, Ms. Berlinski? And, yeah. <laughs> and so how, how did how did just lay out how that that whole project got started? Sure. And I mean, I, I kind of feel bad for Claire because, yeah, I think people are some people are calling it the Dagan and Berlinski article where it actually is a Berlinski and Dagan article. And actually, Claire was the first one to uh, approach Brett and ask him publicly, like, would he respond to her criticism of his messaging, dangerous messaging of creating vaccine hesitancy and saying that vaccines are dangerous and that ivermectin is ivermectin is a better, safer alternative for prophylaxis. So once she laid that out and Brett responded to her that, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll respond. The Claire, um, basically after I saw that, I reached out to Claire and said that, you know, if you would like, you know, some contribution from me, I would be, very happy to provide it because I already kind of reached out or challenged Brett like back in May, back in June on a lot of those points as well. And I was also very upset that he just continued his misinformation campaign about, uh, you know, the dangers of vaccines and at the same time, how safe and effective ivermectin could be as a, as a prophylactic. And so he had this, first he had Pierre Corey on, which was like, ah, oh, okay. And then he had this podcast that he titled How to Save the World with Steve Kirsch and Robert Malone. And that that already was like, what? Like, I, I really, really didn't enjoy that. And then he went on Joe Rogan with his like emergency podcast with, again, Pierre Corey. And basically, I think, or I thought that all of this stuff is very dangerous because it'll just kill people like all the people who trust brett's advice of choosing ivermectin over vaccines that they have available to them in the united states in america in canada in europe and all other places that have vaccines instead brett and his um people he brought on will scare them off of vaccines in favor of ivermectin that brett claims is essentially 100% effective if used properly in preventing COVID. And they probably, those people won't investigate how he got that number. So basically those people, a lot of them will catch COVID and many of them will die. And I just, I couldn't stay silent. That's why I reached out to Claire and she was kind enough to, you know, welcome the collaboration. So we put out that article, which as I want to reiterate, that is mostly... Like the, it's the brainchild of Claire Berlinski. And I like, I basically, I don't want to take the credit, but I'll take all the, all the blame and all the abuse for everything that Brett has found or purported to, to have found wrong with the article, which of course they are uh, gravely mistaken. All of the things that they think are wrong with the article is actually their incompetence and their misunderstanding of what we're saying. And you can have, uh, I mean, I, I go into detail about all of these points on Twitter, where I just have a huge thread on responding point by point of what they gotten wrong. 
so yeah, basically this is how it came about a few weeks back. So Claire had that tweet. I reached out to her and then we started writing. I mean, she, she wrote most of it and uh, I put in some of my parts or edited some of her parts, uh, put in some like numbers and uh, things I, I considered important. And uh, then what we actually did is, uh, I think two weeks ago, we reached out to Brett, sent him a draft. Because we didn't want to, you know, like attack him without, like blindside him, basically. We sent him a draft saying, like, here are, here are our points of criticism. Like, we're willing to hear you out early on. Maybe we, you know, gotten something wrong. If you want to correct something or address something preemptively, we're, we're here. So uh, uh, he didn't respond. Then we sent a follow-up email. He didn't respond. And so we published and that, that gotten his attention <laughs> and uh, he gotten his, uh, him upset, I guess, cause he, uh, I guess he called me a jerk because of it. Although I'm not sure I entirely deserve that. Uh, I mean, I don't think the tone of the article is necessarily, uh, it's not anyways, doesn't matter. So here we are. <laughs> Um, uh, a couple questions that popped in my mind from that. I, so you, you sent Brett a draft and, and he didn't send, issue any response to you after that. Yeah. Yeah. Claire, I mean, Claire sent him oh, the, Claire the draft sent, yeah. twice. I was in the yeah, CC. Yeah, interesting. Um, and uh, you mentioned before, like Claire was already working on this and then you got on board. And uh, I heard Brett mention this, that, um, she had gotten in touch with him before. He he has mentioned that, and I I, I can't quote him because I can't remember exactly what he said. But he said something along the lines of, you know, they they engaged, and then he felt that the engagement was in bad faith, but he never elaborated on on what that specifically entailed. Do you know the the nature of the the initial correspondence between Claire and Brett? Well, I, I, I'm just assuming that's the Twitter discussion that they had where, you know, Claire reached out and said, hey, Brad, I want to, you know, point by point deconstruct your argument. Would you be okay with it? Or I don't even know. Like, I, I, yeah, I don't remember the exact words, but I'm sure if you, like, just Google it on, on, on Twitter, you'll, you'll see it. And Brad said, yeah, let's, let's yeah, I'll respond. Let's do it. And I'm not sure what then he said is, like, bad faith. And I, I, people throw this term around, I think, without actually understanding what the hell it means. And bad faith, from what I understand, or at least like from a legal definition, means some kind of uh, ulterior, mo mo ulterior motive other than the one you're declaring. Or in this case, I guess we're not really trying to deconstruct Brett's arguments. We're not after the truth, but we have, I don't know, someone's paying us to, I don't know, uh, throw dirt or well, maybe not paying us, but we just want to throw dirt on Brett and uh, the arguments we're making are somehow false. Or I don't even know, like, what do you mean bad faith? Like, you is this, you think that we're not saying what we think? Are you saying we're saying it because of, it's not that we care about the people that potentially can die from you misinformation, but for some other reason, or like you think we're after views or clicks or donations on Patreon that we don't have. Like, what do you think we're after here? 
other than the motive that we stated, that we want to stop the misinformation that you're producing. Yeah, so, yeah you, I think you were, that, you were very clear on that earlier. I seen on Twitter that it's this you don't have any sort of profit agenda. And like even all your work on lab leak, you just you've done the work and you've published some stuff and you, you know it's it's not any sort of there's no sort of monetary scheme behind it all or anything of that sort. Yeah, absolutely. This is all a hobby to me, and this is not in any way connected to even my work. Like people think, oh, you're like a biotech entrepreneur so you might be like paid by pharma companies to promote vaccines and if you're not paid then maybe you're like hoping that one day you'll have this product that you want to sell to pharma companies and if you don't promote vaccines now that they won't buy it like in 10 years man and this is like such complete and utter bullshit that is just like hilarious if you think like this is my motivation that i'd be like writing stuff about Pfizer and Moderna, like it's not even Pfizer and Moderna, vaccines in general, to, I don't know, hope that Pfizer or Moderna buy, I mean, out of the other uh, three dozen big pharma companies, I'm focusing on these two to hope that they buy my whatever, like I'm not even sure what exactly they think I'm uh, planning, what therapy, like I'm, I'm definitely planning to develop a longevity therapy but i'm sure that like if i succeed in developing a, a real a therapy that really extends lifespan there'll be a lineup of big pharma companies uh, who'd be willing to buy it regardless of what the hell i ever said or didn't say on vaccine lab leak or any other topic i mean so this is just such a ridiculous argument trying to find ulterior motive and in, in basically like people for some reason like there's a, like, a recurring theme whatever you say people for some reason don't <clears throat> examine your arguments they try to examine your motives like first and mm -hmm. foremost and okay even if i do have some ulterior motive can you just like look at the arguments are they sound do they make sense who cares why i'm writing this if i'm wrong tell me where i'm wrong give me counter argument why are you questioning my motivation without even like, may, uh, unless, of course, you're stupid enough that you can't evaluate the arguments I'm making. In that case, yeah, uh, the only thing you can question is my motive. But, like, that's that's on you, dude. You're just dumb. So, I mean, I'm not even going to, like, respond to you because if you were smart enough to challenge the arguments, at least challenge the arguments, i definitely respond. Because, you know, I care about the arguments. I care about being correct. And if I'm wrong, I care about admitting that I'm wrong and I have absolutely no problem admitting that I'm wrong. And so, but yeah, like do like questioning the motive is like exactly the opposite of people what should be doing. Yeah. Uh, two things Anyways. there. For, 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 <laughs> I, yeah. I feel that like I, I start, sorry. No, no, go ahead, Yuri. No, no, no. I mean, I, I start talking, 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 and then I abruptly, abruptly stop. And I, I think I catch you off guard. You were like hoping that, or you, you, you maybe you're still not prepared to ask the next question. And you're like, oh shit, I, I, I have to ask him something. <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry, you, you, just, I, yeah. you, you, you go on a bunch and you, you give me things to think about. But um, no, two, two points there. I do, it, I do. It is, uh, one is that, uh, like you, you sort of mentioned this, you, you alluded to a theme that comes up often in this discussion with with the vaccines and you know non-patent pharmaceuticals and that the, there's the the idea that there's certainly some sort of collusion going on you know with, with the pharmaceutical companies and either the press and or the government bodies or public health authorities 
And yeah. you know, that could be the case, but there's no reason to like hold on to that with, with all your life. And, you know, I, 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 I have, that's where one of my concerns are. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave aside uh, Steve Kirsch and, and Dr. Malone on that. I, I think they run down a, a lot of paths that uh, confuse me, but I, I think that uh, Pierre Corey and, and Brett have, clung on to that concept uh, a little too firmly it is possible that that's the case but there, there's too much of a lean on that without uh, without any uh evidence that i've seen to to really substantiate that and but then back to the the first point on on bad faith you know that's an issue i've seen uh that i've been critical of brett for doing for years is that he uses that that term a lot, and I think sometimes it is accurate, and that that there is somebody you know making an attack on him with purely bad intentions. So that would apply, and then sometimes perhaps this is the the case uh, now that he's he's also uh, applying it as as he outlined with yourself. You know, it's it's completely inaccurate, but um, sometimes he'll even throw it out. You know, he'll say somebody's acting in, in in bad faith when you know they're you, you know they they just might be wrong when they're attacking him, and it's it's you know it's a matter of just faith, but it, <laughs> it, you know he he uh, of, of some sort of orthodox mindset driving it. So I, I found that that Brad has been much too cavalier with with uh, distributing that that comment or that that application of of intentions towards people for um quite some time now um on on the article in general one criticism as a whole i've come across and uh maybe this brings it more so towards your your co-author was that it was too um polemical in nature and i've you said you contributed some of the the scientific uh, attributes and like I've, I've seen you post a bunch of stuff before this and after this about, uh, you know, different papers and, and so forth. And uh, the, 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 um, the, the scientific angle to the whole affair. But um, uh, are, are you concerned that not just with this article, but with the pushback against vaccine hesitancy uh, or just outright anti-vax sentiments or you know, anything in between? that uh, there, there's too much of just a, uh, as I mentioned, just, just a polemical nature to the argument and not just cold, hard um, scientific analysis and uh, rebuttal. Uh, well, let me just start with saying that all of the bad stuff in the article is like totally Claire's fault. So no, I'm kidding. I, mean, I, I hope like, if Claire listens, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure she like, I, I know Yuri's just going to like sell me out of this. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, well, you know, I mean, although I said it's, it's written in Claire's voice and it's Claire's article, we definitely worked together on it and we went through like, I don't know, 10 different revisions. And it actually... I don't know if I shouldn't be saying that, but it was like a huge, initially huge article, which we greatly condensed and like actually Claire then later split it into like three different blog posts and which like on, on a couple of them, 
I'm not even in the in the authorship. Uh, and then and then uh, like the crystallization of that huge piece became the Quillette article, where we definitely work together, and I definitely like fully support all of the rhetoric devices, polemic devices, uh, anything like so. Uh, there's nothing in there that I do not endorse. So I'm not going to like hide behind anything that I like, even if I would have said something differently and, and yeah, like my style is more of like this boring academic, like what, well, like, like at least compared to her, I'm much more boring academic, even though, I, I mean, I like to, to write it in a way that's readable. Like if you read my I don't know, medium, medium articles, you'll see that my style is definitely much less polemic and just, just in general, because I don't know, I, I think I just don't possess the necessary capacity to, to write like that. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm much more terse and just <clears throat> basically much worse of a writer <laughs> than Claire is who comes from like the uh, elite creds tradition of writing right. for her entire life of very elegant and beautiful polemic pieces that, yeah, sometimes people might take issue with on, I don't know, like on the exact polemic devices used, but uh, that's, I mean, I, I'm like, greatly admire the article that we ended up producing even if you know uh i probably couldn't have <laughs> written it like that myself uh, that said the uh, idea that we should make it you know less scientific and more polemic or more palatable to like a general audience uh, then, like, for example, I would write always, like, overestimating the uh, uh, degree of scientific literacy required to, to somehow, like, understand my arguments. And sometimes people are like, what are you, like, I, I didn't get what you were saying, so I have to. And this is where great, Brett is great as a communicator. He can really, like, reach audience, mm -hmm. like, of lay people. And basically, we needed to we needed to write it in a way to reach Brett's audience. And that's what, what we did. And if, you know, in the process, we offended them that we were not very nice to Brett or at least like very uh, calling calling him out style, like I call it jerk style. I'll, I'll, I'm the jerk, um, not Claire. Uh, then, uh, you know, uh, uh, at least we got him to think. And if they get turned off by the style rather than the arguments, well, you know, it's, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll live with that. I mean, I tried my best. I'm not, I'm not trying to be like the savior of, of everybody, of all the Brett's listeners. I'm just trying to make at least people notice that, you know, Brett might be, or not might be, that Brett is saying wrong and dangerous things. And if you need to be like babied and I don't know convinced by very different messaging that uh, Claire and I had, well, uh, I don't know, tough. Like I don't really, I can't say I, I don't care, but I mean, what's done is done. And maybe if 
if if if this is really the sticking point that we miscalculated and this is like greatly undermines the effectiveness of our article well oh, sorry i guess it's like if would we knowing this and having the hindsight which is 2020 would we have written it exactly the same way? Oh, probably not, because like most of the people who had a negative reaction to the article had a negative reaction, not to the arguments made, but to the style that they perceived was a little too adversarial. So in retrospect, yeah, probably should have softened it up a bit, but like without knowing this in advance, I don't, like we didn't anticipate that people would take such issue with with the, with the style, because I, I mean, I think it's a, decent styles for like Quillette and like cosmopolitan piece trying to call out someone who you think is doing something dangerous. I don't know. I won't try to like really uh, claim that I understand how that style should work. It's really, again, not my uh, area of expertise, like how these literary uh, publications on what style they use. Um, definitely much more on the like the scientific terse terse prose side but um basically to summarize uh, i think uh, yeah i think i already said there's no need to to repeat what i already said it's going to be in the podcast so yeah so uh on that i i guess like uh, what what i did see I, i don't know how relevant this is but you know, there there was were a lot of people who definitely you know agreed with you all, already, and you know just 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 loved it. And then of course there's some people who are opposed to the vaccines or you know are in Brett's audience, and you know they w- would have had some degree of mindset going in that that they're they're going to be disfavorable to it. So I, I guess what you're going for is 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 um, something more in between. You know, somebody who might be in, engaged with the topic, but is 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 opening to to change their mind, and I, I guess that that's also part of the, the the criticism I've seen is that you know if you were to make it, and you mentioned before, you need to make it for like a, a general audience. It can't be just like a a, a scientific paper because then nobody's going to read it, and you know except. Well, you know, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, not not nobody. You, you know what I you know what I mean. I definitely know. I'm just um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I guess the uh, the concern there is then like, if if you're looking to like, you can make it for a general audience, but if you're trying to you know you know convert people over or or change their mind, like. Uh, the, the the concern then is, is that it's you know a little too scathing in, in that regard and and I've been worried about this with the the, the conversation um, with with COVID in, in in general is that you know people get on sides and then they're just throwing shit at each other over the wall and then just hoping that you know the turd lands in the other guy's face <laughs> and so I I, I I'm, I'm wondering what your what your thoughts are on that and, and really the the whole COVID situation in general about how people are getting balkanized and hmm. uh, just 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 throwing mud at each other. Right. Well, I'm, I mean, in advance, you it's really hard to predict how your article is going to be perceived or even read, and there's a, like a very 
delicate balance that you need to strike both in terms of the article generating interest and you know if you if you want it to be heard widely you need people to then you know distribute it or you know retweet it or whatever and if basically like you said if it's too blah people are not going to be compelled to then you know even read it, let alone retweet it or promote it or show it to their friends or, you know, tweet at Brett Weinstein, look at what these jerks wrote. Uh, and at the same time, yeah, like if you overdo it, uh, like you might get a little counterproductive that people are not going to listen to your message, but just will be upset with you having the, that a little bit too adversarial tone. And I, I mean, writing is hard, man. Like <laughs> you can't know these things in advance. And when you're writing things, you have to construct it. Uh, like, yeah, there's like the, there's the message and then there's the medium, like Marshall McLuhan. And then you have to like, yeah, like meld it together and, to make it entertaining and at the same time to make the arguments compelling enough and, you know, bulletproof enough. And sometimes I guess we like, uh, even people like Heather hang or hying, I think is the right pronunciation. Hying. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Couldn't apparently completely comprehend what we're saying and like make such simple mistakes in reading comprehension that I guess in ultimately, lands in the problem that we didn't write it clearly enough or like we again we assumed a bit too much or we took out too much content that we kind of again if once when you write something you go through it like a gazillion times through the draft and all, i mean sometimes it's already in your head and and you can take something out and forget that okay it's like it's not in the paper anymore or something and like it's it's in your head so it's for you it's clear like what you're saying it's like okay here's a here's b here's c and then and then when you like edit and you take the b out and like here's a here's c and of course there's, there's b it's obvious to anybody who who read this paper 10 times like we did and you forget that it's not there and then like again reading comprehension issues like with with heather hying could strike and they're like oh they they're they're conflating prophylaxis and treatment. They're like, no, we're not. Like it says here, there's prophylaxis and there's treatment. And this is the quote that says, like in the study that, you know, looked at the symptom resolution, which obviously is treatment. Like how can you make the mistake that it's not treatment? Anyways, so yeah, basically I just discussed this, this uh, on, on the other podcast. So um, it's still fresh in my mind. And I'm sure you you have that question as well somewhere down the line of uh, what exactly did Heather Hying mean when she said you don't know what prophylaxis means. I I do so. have that question. <laughs> ah, <laughs> you, my yeah, crystal yeah, yeah. ball is correct. Yeah, yeah, you 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 have the gift of foresight. But yeah, we we can we can move on from like the construction of the of the of the article itself because you know I, I'm assuming your your guys's concerns about you know editing it down is just so that you garner more attention than people actually read through it. Because, you know, Quillette doesn't have very you know, specific uh, length boundaries from, from what I've noticed. And they'll publish things quite a bit longer than that. 
but at the same time, like maybe you want to have a, you know, a, a certain length just so that you make sure people get through the whole thing and it's a lot, a lot more succinct and all, and all that. But and they have their own editors, so it's not just us. I mean, uh, there's editors, and uh, like right. they took a knife to it, and the, we had like you know, back and forth with the editors. And, oh, yeah, okay. like it's, some parts they took out, and you know, they're like, wait, no, that's important. You can't take that out. Yeah, like this, yeah. Uh, the magic of modern publishing. <laughs> the oh. editors also they'll, they'll take your your article and uh, turn it into something like you barely recognize. But not not in this case. But uh, sometimes it could happen. Yeah, the the, the battle with the copy editor. Um, but I, I guess we, we can jump. Like you mentioned, the the point that that Heather made with, with the the prophylaxis and all that. And I, I sure. went over the. Um, the actually before we go into the the, the specific points, like I, I I you obviously listened to the the rebuttal that that Brett and Heather had on their program, and mm-hmm. uh, I I went yeah. over it. <laughs> sure, you were. You know where there. the thread I had on like all the points that I responded to, or you went over the actual podcast? Oh, both, both. Yeah, no, oh. I, I watched it. I I seen your your thread as well, but uh, okay. I guess give, give a, a general sense of the impression that you got from the rebuttal that they they gave Mm -hmm. yeah i mean if if you read the thread you already know my general sense that i'm very happy to have them put that out in a podcast because there is like incontrovertible evidence of just how incompetent brett and heather are and it's just laid bare for all to see that they are very incompetent on questions of drug development, uh, you know, pharmacokinetics, data analysis, or just basic biology at times. That uh, it's great that they 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 had that podcast. So, and I I mean I do go point by point to highlight what exactly. I mean that they're incompetent and you know if you're interested it's all on twitter it's in the thread or i mean we can just discuss it now point by point if you have precise questions about like what, what exactly where exactly they demonstrated the incompetence uh sure well, I, I, but yeah I, like basically the the the, um, the overall impression is that mm-hmm. first of all yeah they they betrayed their incompetence and second they didn't clear any points of criticism like they didn't resolve they didn't have any good arguments for all of our arguments none so they're they're still wrong they still haven't proven anything of their initial claims about ivermectin supreme effectiveness as a prophylactic they didn't prove anything about vaccine being dangerous they just reiterated that in a like two second piece brad's like oh yeah the spike is still toxic and the vaccine doesn't stay at the injection site. Like, oh, not this again. Uh, but yeah, they they didn't provide any arguments. And I mean, they claim they still will publish something, and maybe in there they'll provide. And other than they blindly trusting the Carvalho study that you know showed 100% effectiveness, again, they didn't provide anything why they think it might work. All all of you hear about, oh, but Yuri Dagan doesn't know how it works. But it might work this, and we don't know how it works. But it might work like this, or it might work like that. Like this is not scientific argument, dude. Like, give me a good reason to believe you. So far, you're not. 
And whenever he tries to give any good reasons, it's laughably incompetent. Like his telomere theory or telomere uh, hypothesis that, you know, uh, the drugs that have been approved by the FDA are still dangerous because their toxicity has not yet been adequately assessed because they were tested in lab mice, which Brett Weinstein in 2002 has shown have much longer telomeres than wild type mice. And for that, they must have much better tolerance of toxicity. Like this is laughably wrong, like really laughably wrong. And so, yeah, to, uh, that's to hear a, that, him, that, that, that's a big point that that Brett has that he that he's talked about quite a bit. That's that's one of the yeah, the, he's so the proud of points. Like, Tell him your discovery. So, like so Nobel what, Prize, like what? Yeah, like, yeah this is it, like Dunning Kruger peak of Mount Everest, you know, <laughs> this is just, yeah, like ridiculous, uh, that someone can like, no, nah, uh, anyways. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm curious about that, that point. Like I, sure. I'm not a scientist. I, I don't understand this. So mm. uh, I, I understand the point that he's trying to make, but I'm not in any position to, you know, be favorable to it, nor to, right. to really scrutinize it. So I, I'm, I'm curious about that. Cause, and, and, uh, Brett and Eric, uh, Eric Weinstein, uh, Brett's uh, older brother, um, have been very uh, favorable and adamant about this. So what is the the issue with the, the telomere hypothesis? Right. Well, I mean, Brett thinks that he's discovered that lab-bred mice have elongated telomeres because of breeding protocols or the, the issue with breeding protocols. And so back in 2002, when he was a grad student, apparently he discovered that lab mice have longer telomeres than wild-type mice. And that in itself, as a discovery, is questionable because there's just so many different strains of mice and telomeres are just so variable between different individuals, between different animals, that like you would need a very big sample size of all the different strains of mice, I mean, some, like for each strain of mice where you want to measure the average telomere length, you need a lot of animals to, to do so and of different ages because telomeres, you know, actually negatively correlate with age as well. And so if you're actually comparing like di distinct ages between distinct strains, you might see results that are not representative of the strains, but are more representative of the aging dynamics of telomeres. And, uh, but mice are, you know, animals with some of the longest telomeres. Mice, rats, although like squirrels have actually longer telomeres, like 50,000 kilobases. Squirrels, mice, mice actually vary between 30 to 50,000. Like some lab mice were shown to be even like 100, 150,000 K long telomeres. But all of this is, uh, maybe a curious observation, but to make the leap that this observation is somehow biologically relevant, especially biologically relevant to tolerance of toxicity, is complete and utter conjecture, which like completely unproven and just just plain wrong, because toxicity, small molecule toxicity, or even even. I mean, I mean, like, there's different other insults that you could do. You could, like, radioactive insult. You can, like, but it doesn't, doesn't matter. Let's, let's stick to, like, the point of Brett's 
claims that small molecule toxicity or just drug toxicity that's been assessed in mice is somehow underestimated uh, because the mice with longer telomeres, he thinks, are better able to tolerate toxicity or recover from toxicity, like sublethal toxicity, which again, like who cares where are we, like toxicity is uh, assessed as a, as a lethal dose, like are the mice dying or not? There, it's not like assessed how quickly do they recover? But even like the idea that somehow telomere length is responsible for the tolerance of toxicity is wrong. I'll try to be moderately polite. We're on a Canadian podcast, right? So we have to be nice. That's right. That's right. Right. So, uh, and again, uh, uh, yeah, like telomere length, and like there's been this, Telomere hypothesis of aging, basically, that maybe it's the telomeres, like the high flick limit. Yeah, it's been popular, I don't know, 10 years ago. The, the, the high flick discovered that actually, contrary to what uh, oh, um, Corel, from, I'm blanking on the name, on the first name. Basically, the, the, this, like the first, there was this dude, uh, famous, I think it was Nobel Prize winner, that said that uh, in vitro cells can divide basically forever. Cells are immortal in, in vitro. But then there was this Leonard Hayflick or Hayflick who actually discovered that, no, actually after a bunch of divisions, cells just stop dividing. And so he discovered telomere or the Hayflick limit and then discovered telomeres and then they discovered uh, telomerase. I guess it was Elizabeth Blackburn or like, uh, I used to know all this stuff. I'm, I, mean, I was like very deep into telomeres. Basically, the the the... High flick limit is that after 50 divisions, stop, cells stop dividing. And the hypothesis was, or I guess the theory that's been proven, that that's because of telomeres. Like once telomeres get too short, cells don't divide anymore and they just go into senescence. And so if you actually induce telomerase in those cells, uh, they can keep dividing or you can immortalize cells that way. Cancer cells have telomerase constituency active, like it's always active, it elongates telomeres, that's why cancer cells are immortal, can divide, you know, as, as long as possible. And the idea was, okay, maybe this is tied to aging somehow. Maybe we're aging because our telomeres get too short and just our cells can't divide anymore. Which even on a logical level is actually a pretty silly hypothesis because like what tissues do you think are limiting our survival? Is it the brain tissues which don't divide after birth? Is it the, oh, again, like some, some like neurons don't divide. Is it uh, muscle tissues? Is it our like uh, blood cells or hemopoietic cells that just keep dividing all the time and have telomeres active? So telomeres are definitely not a factor, a limiting factor in, in, in those tissues, in fast dividing tissues, in blood cells. So... Um, Basically, the telomerase or the telomere hypothesis of aging has been disproven for a long time. And although I mean, it didn't stop some, some proponents of uh, not even like there's been, there's been the telomere theory of aging and there's a like, telomerase hypothesis of life extension. And they claim telomerase has many other positive uh, functions in the body other than just elongating telomeres. And if you upregulate telomerase, you can actually extend lifespan. And there's been like a Spanish group in like Maria Blasco in Spain that has shown that if you like transgenic mice, or if you, even if you do a gene therapy in, in wild type mice, inject them with telomerase gene, that that somehow extends lifespan by like 20%, which for mice is not really a lot. But still it inspired people like uh, Liz Parrish, 
to try telomerase therapy on herself. And there's Bill Andrews, who is uh, like a, one of the premier names in like the, the telomerase, um, you know, life extension movement. And there's uh, Michael Fossil with his telocyte company who wanted to, to, to do a trial in Alzheimer's for telomerase gene therapy. And actually they, they're doing a, two trials now in Alzheimer's patients in Colombia and in, uh, in Mexico with the telomerase gene therapy. One of them is from Liz Parrish from BioViva and the other company is actually affiliated with Bill Andrews. But it doesn't, doesn't matter. Like, mm-hmm. you know, well, yeah, like I, get on, I get on tangents, basically. Um, <laughs> we we, I, we, we I went mean, over that shit, last time. Yes, I'm sorry. I mean, I, like <laughs> telomeres is something that I've been really deep into. And like, let's climb back out of the, the, this deep well that we got into telomeres. But And coming back to like Brett's claim that somehow mice with long telomeres would be less susceptible to toxic in, in, insult, it, it's by itself, it's bullshit. And then the second order bullshit is that that somehow can mean that drugs have been inadequately tested before being allowed in humans. And this is second order bullshit because mice, first of all, are not the only animals in which we test toxicity. You are required to have animal trials in at least two species, two different species. And usually it's more than that. It's mice, rats, dogs, sometimes non-human primates. And that's just to start human trials. And we only are allowed to start phase one trials, which phase one are designed to test safety. They're, they're usually in healthy volunteers, unless it's for like cancer or something where you can't, you know, ethically do it in, mm. in human volunteers. But most of the drugs, especially small molecule drugs, are tested first in phase one in completely healthy people to just like assess their safety, assess that there's no toxicity. And they only will do so, they only start testing after it's been demonstrated in many animal species that they're safe, the drug is safe. So, and then they're testing in humans, of course. And only then will, you know, we'll start testing efficacy in humans after we have confirmed that the drug is safe in humans. So for Brett to be very suspicious of uh, pills because he thinks short telomeres or mice with long telomeres will somehow inadequately uh, confirm safety of drugs is just like so juvenile uh, incompetent that I don't even like hearing that, that drops the level of credibility of anybody from uh, not close to zero, basically. Like if if a biologist says something like that, biologist says something like this, or a drug developer or a pharmacologist says something like this, the level of credibility drops to zero. So whatever he says afterwards, like you take it with a huge grain of salt and not, I mean, for good measure, because he then proceeds to say a lot of other silly things. And, uh, again, if you have like- And here we uh, are. Per- yeah, <laughs> particular questions that, uh, you know, you want to address, we can address those. I just, one <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a long telomere. <laughs> uh, I was wondering, uh, I've never heard- detour. A, 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 a counter argument to that, like I, I, I heard his discussion about that, I think, uh, on, on his own accord a bit. And then he had a big talk with it with Rogan uh, a little over a year oh, ago. And then yeah, Rogan uh, is a premier expert on telomeres, right? <laughs> well, no, yeah, but basically, but, yeah, I think he just has never been challenged on it because, I mean, people, first of all, people don't challenge other people, even if it's a false belief just because it's just not nice you know it's 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 not hurting anybody let him 
think that he made this grand discovery and you know why do you want to ruin his self-image by pointing out that that discovery is bullshit but like now if it's actually relevant to the discussion if it's relevant to his credibility and to his competence it demonstrates his incompetence on questions of life and death where he is trying to promote ivermectin and he's been so wrong on pharmacology before then actually i i think you have to point that out and you know that's what i'm doing so one point he 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 would bring up on the 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 telomere hypothesis um and i'm not sure if there's there's anything really really to to parse from it but tell me what you think i i found it interesting but maybe it's it's irrelevant is that he noted that uh what was it is his graduate super no i i can't remember somebody else who is who is working with uh she uh dismissed his 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 claims in a way just of, of not so being inaccurate but of no of lacking importance but then he noted that she took a lot of his work and, and utilized it for herself um if 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 some of that work was then utilized um uh, are you do you recall um in in what way that was utilized and what relevance and and what relevancy would have there no i actually haven't heard that that argument made but i mean again it's irrelevant because that hypothesis first of all yes it it sounds okay it could have a grain of truth that yeah lab mice could have longer telomeres than wild type mice if they are bred somehow for i don't know like do they it, it's it's possible to breed, yeah. Like you, for you can have artificial selection on any characteristic that you want, but it's just irrelevant. It, it's certainly irrelevant to drug safety, and it's mm-hmm. uh, it's irrelevant to pretty much any other uh, assessment of anything in lab mice other than telomere length. So, um, I, and I can't even think of a study that you know would depend critically on the assessment of telomere length. That isn't because uh, again, relying on telomeres as a, some kind of biological explanation for any any phenomenon has been proven wrong and wrong again, and like from you know, from longevity to I don't know, but basically, yeah, it's irrelevant. So even if he did find that lab mice have longer telomeres, whatever he then concluded based on that is still wrong because telomere length is irrelevant to like the the rest of the biology of you know mice or other mammals got it okay that was that was that was interesting i i, I wanted to hear more discussion on that topic but i, you I heard guess it here we, for uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go i guess we'll, we'll we'll jump back to to um what uh brett and heather uh, earlier this week uh issued uh, towards you um and, and so i we can go back to what you brought up and so heather said that uh, when you were criticizing the prophylaxis of ivermectin, you, that she said you cited a study on treatment. And you were mentioning, you started mentioning about how that's not mm-hmm. accurate. So go for it. Yeah, sure. So basically, yeah. So we had this paragraph that was on, actually, I have it. Actually, I can pull it up in the article and i'll just read it and yes so heather said 
that we don't know the difference between prophylaxis and treatment because in in the paragraph on prophylaxis, we reference a study on treatment to support our uh, uh, claim that that we have, I guess, no evidence or something, no evidence of uh, ivermectin's prophylactic efficacy, which, as I pointed out in a tweet, on this is just, uh, you know, Heather's inability to comprehend what she's reading. So let me, I, I, here, I pulled it up. I'll just read the paragraph. So the previous paragraph talked about the vaccines, uh, like how great they are, the mRNA vaccines, how, uh, what a huge percent effectiveness of efficacy they have. And uh, so the previous paragraph is like, Reports the Pfizer mRNA vaccine is 93% effective in preventing serious illness and hospitalization for the Delta variant. If you're looking for a miracle drug to protect you from COVID-19, look no further. This is it. This is it being vaccines. Mm-hmm. So in the next paragraph, the one that you know uh, Heather Hying took offense to. Next mm-hmm. paragraph, how does the evidence for the prophylactic efficacy of ivermectin stack up against the vaccines? It's not even close. Next sentence. Remember, we don't yet know that the drug provides any significant benefit. Any is italicized. Any means any being neither prophylactic nor treatment. Next sentence. A high-quality study published in JAMA found that in a randomized clinical trial that included 476 patients with mild COVID-19, a five-day course of ivermectin compared with placebo did not significantly improve the time to resolution of symptoms. So. Like, if anybody thinks that this sentence means anything about prophylaxis, where we, we, we say patients with mild COVID-19 compared with placebo did not significantly improve the time to resolution of symptoms, anybody with, like, two brain cells uh, who knows anything about drug development, if those two brain cells know about drug development, they'll obviously realize that this sentence is talking about treatment. This is a study we're citing, which we say was a in patients with COVID-19 that did not improve the resolution of symptoms. Obviously, this is what we're citing in support that the drug does not have any proven benefit, any being neither prophylactic, which we'll get to in the next paragraph, or treatment. So, like, it's this, the sentence, how a person with adequate reading comprehension, the paragraph, how with adequate reading comprehension would be reading is, how does the evidence for the prophylactic efficacy of ivermectin stack up against the vaccines? It's not even close, period. Remember, we don't yet know that the drug provides any significant benefit. A high quality study, blah, blah, blah. No, uh, no difference between placebo or ivermectin in treatment. Next paragraph. But again, for the sake of argument, let's go with the most generous interpretation of available experiment results. And then we go back to prophylaxis. This site, which purports to offer a highly dubious real-time meta-analysis of ivermectin studies, claims the drug's aggregated prophylactic efficacy is 85%. Even if this were true, this would mean your odds of developing COVID-19 while taking ivermectin are about 6.67 times lower than those of a counterpart in the control group. But if you've received the mRNA vaccine, however, your odds are 20 times lower. So basically, you know, three times better protection vaccines offer than ivermectin, even if we take the most generous 
uh, meta-study estimate of ivermectin's prophylactic effectiveness. So, like, like anybody, I think, with decent reading comprehension reading this will understand when we're talking about prophylaxis, when we're talking about treatment, we're saying that the drug does not have any proven benefit when, when studies are done properly, basically. The JAMA study is an example of a randomized placebo-controlled study conducted in uh, you know good institution that we trust and we show that when done properly, it does not provide any benefit over placebo here in treatment. And then, but even if we trust the studies about prophylaxis with aggregated 85% efficacy, that efficacy is still like three times worse than that of vaccines. So we're bringing it back that advocating for using ivermectin over vaccines is suicide because ivermectin is even by the best estimate, three times worse. So three times worse means, you know, three times more people will be killed by ivermectin if they choose it over vaccines. Uh, that's it. So, so you think, I don't know. You think, you think that Heather really misread you there then? Well, I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Either maybe she did it in bad faith, you know, maybe she wanted to like paint me as incompetent and decided to use this uh mildly unclear way in which, you know, the paragraph is structured that, you know, it's prophylaxis, any treatment, and then we, especially uh, prophylaxis, then any benefit, no, no, no significant benefit either. And then we uh, proven, uh, we show that in treatment, it doesn't have results. And then we go back to prophylaxis. And then she's like, oh, this demonstrates or like whether it's in bad faith or in good faith, she thought that we're, we're confused and basically she's the one confused. And I think this is a more like, the, like really, I don't think she did it in bad faith. I think, she, I think she's just, uh, you know, incompetent, even at basic reading comprehension. So I'll, I'll try to play a devil's advocate on a, a couple points on that one. Um, I guess. Go for it. Well, uh, I guess. Uh, Lucifer. One, one, yes. <laughs> Tis I. <laughs> Uh, from the depths of hell. Um, yeah. So, or actually, more I saw on one point, and then just more of a general question uh, for the, the second. So, I guess it, it, is it important then to bring up at all, like perspective uh, degrees to how much the the vaccines are better than ivermectin when we just don't know? Should you maybe just leave it then at that level of abstraction that we just don't know? We just don't know what, how that, good ivermectin is? Yeah, that it has any effect or to what degree the, the effect is than to just going off of perspective effects and just, just leaving it at just that level. Is that we don't, we're, we don't we're, know? We're, we're not going off of you know, treatment effects. We're going off of prophylactic effects from, different, from other studies. Like 85% number of ivermectin's prophylactic efficacy comes from prophylactic studies of ivermectin aggregated there's like been dozens of them which exactly why we don't trust the carvio study because carvio study is the only one that claims zero percent infected in the ivermectin group versus all the other studies that have you know comparable rates at least to uh, between the two groups and uh, like if you aggregate all the other like dozens of prophylactic studies of, of ivermectin which ivermectin proponents think prove that it's efficacious at prophylaxis that number of how efficacious it is 85 percent is still way worse than vaccines 
which have been proven to be 95% or even higher effective in uh, like randomized, huge sample size, very trustworthy data. So we know like 95% is like absolutely certain, at least 95% versus 85%. Like this is probably wishful thinking that these are very, you know, underpowered studies. A lot of them are not even randomized, not even double blind. So, and ultimately we'll have the proper study, I'm sure, of ivermectin's prophylactic efficacy, which will show it to be near zero. Like this is my uh, belief. I'm willing to, you know, put it out there. Uh, but as of, as of right now, even all of the proponents think it's at least or at most 95% effective. And that's just much worse than vaccines. If this is what you're going by, you're still making a grave mistake because you're, you know, three, you're giving yourself three times worse protection that vaccines could provide. And vaccines provided like once and for all, whereas ivermectin, you have to take it, I don't know, weekly at least, if not bi-weekly or maybe even daily. And who knows what its safety profile is for the like, long-term chronic administration. Nobody actually did it. Nobody knows. Nobody took it for months or, or, or years on end on week on a weekly basis and like this is a whole other issue but even all those issues aside vaccines just are way way superior in the very like the most important metric protection at least three times more effective by like the the most generous uh metric of ivermectin so this okay. is this is what what we're writing and again if it wasn't clear i guess we we didn't we didn't do a good enough job no maybe i just got something jumbled in the moment so you're, you're saying that there is a lot more concrete evidence on the prophylactic effect but it's a lot more up in the air on the treatment effect um no oh okay <laughs> no the basically what we're saying is when studies are done properly in like a double blind placebo controlled way with a good enough big enough sample size that you know it's it's well enough statistically powered like the JAMA study was that prof, like uh, the efficacy of ivermectin is shown to be almost non-existent and this was a treatment study so we don't have the same study for uh, uh, prophylaxis there is no study to which we can point and say uh, okay like prophylactically they did a proper study and they didn't find anything. For prophylaxis, we use the best, like the 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 high higher highest bound mm -hmm. for ivermectin effectiveness. Like based on all of the prophylactic studies, most of which were uh, you know badly uh, conducted, just not very trustworthy. But we'll we'll give ivermectin the benefit of the doubt and say. Even if it was working as well as you guys are claiming it's working, based on your you know meta-analysis of dozens of small studies with potential bias, that number is still way below vaccine efficacy, and vaccine efficacy has been proven. Yeah, so very much this, so on the on the efficacy point, indeed. Yeah, so these are the two points we're trying to make that. Even though we, yeah, like the, the, the most important point is that we, know, we don't know it has any efficacy because it hasn't been proven in a conclusive study. And the studies that have been done properly haven't shown efficacy. But again, 
Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence just because it has, we haven't yet had a good study, a good prophylactic study done properly that can rule it out. Okay, let's just for a second assume that the claim 85% is what we'll see if we do it properly. Still, 85% sucks compared to 95% of vaccines sucks. So even if you trust ivermectin's you know, studies, still picking it over vaccines is stupid. So that brings me to uh, uh, another question, I guess that can sort of generally cover uh, the, the disagreement then between you and Brett and Heather is, you, you know, I think you've stated that, you know, their studies are, are cherry picked or something along that lines and are inadequate. And, and it's, you outlined in the article, you, you touched on the Argentinian study and I believe some others. And then their general point is that your studies are inadequate. So just, uh, I guess for, for, for somebody as dumb as myself, you know, listening to, to both sides, you know, let, let's sort of go over like the, the diff, what your perspective is of the difference between the, the, the studies that uh, you've been utilizing and the, the studies that uh, Brett and Heather, as well as uh, Dr. Corey have been uh, utilizing. Sure. Well, I can try. Basically, it's it's not it's not what we're that we're cherry picking. It's that we're showing that when studies are done properly, and I mean, drug developers have known this for decades that when you like badly constructed studies can give you great results, but when you do them the studies properly, those great results disappear because those great results most likely came from bias or you know just other things that you didn't control for. And that's why you do randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled to avoid all the kinds of bias that can give you good results. And so when studies are done properly, like we had like the JAMA study or the, there's a few other studies that have been done in a proper way, ivermectin is not shown to be effective. So it's only shown to be effective like with a big degree of efficacy in treatment or prophylaxis in bad, bad studies. That aside, there's just like one study, the Argentinian study by Hector Carvalho and, and others, that Brett is using as justification for why ivermectin is so great as a prophylactic, because in that study, ivermectin has shown uh, 100% efficacy. Like nobody gets sick in the treatment group. And they had like two, two stages. Basically, overall, they had like, uh, I think, 788. No, overall, they had like up to 900 people in the ivermectin group between the two trials. And zero got sick. While at the same time, in the control group, like in one hospital, like 92% got sick. Like zero, 92%, there's a huge disparity. And basically, it's to, to any person with any expertise in at least like even statistics, not even drug development, to know that like there's such, such huge disparity between groups, it's a huge red flag that there's something about those data that, that's just you know not trust, trustworthy. But Brett is using just that study, Brett and Heather, I guess, to justify that ivermectin is something like 100% effective when used properly. 
and he never actually like qualifies what does it mean when used properly. I've asked him, him that at least like a couple of times on Twitter. He never responded, but he makes that claim twice on, in, on his Save the World podcast. And I guess a lot of people just, you know, listening to him, take it just on faith that ivermectin can be 100% effective and we can like end the pandemic if everybody took it for a month. And the only data point that Brett is basing that is this Argentinian Carvalho study. That's the only data point that, you know, can support the argument for ivermectin's 100% effectiveness. Whereas uh, two, like two dozen other studies of ivermectin as prophylactic don't have anywhere near 100%. Like the like 80, 80%, 70%, 82%, like in some, somewhere in the 90s, but like aggregated uh, meta-analysis percentage of prophylaxis is 85%. Why though Brett chooses to believe this huge outlier with huge methodological problems over the other body of evidence of ivermectin being at most 85% uh, effective is beyond me. And this is like our biggest uh, argument or our biggest question, I guess, in the Colette article, in, in my communication with Brett, and he never actually justifies uh, why he chooses to believe that study other than like he, <clears throat> he just like, he, he attacks me like, oh, Yuri Dagan thinks it's fake. Oh, isn't that libel? Uh, they can sue Yuri Dagan. Like, oh, he thinks they're lying, huh? Huh? He thinks they're lying. Like, this is your justification? Like, why do you trust it, man? Like, look at the data. Look at the, the, the study. The, it's fucking laughable, okay? You trust that shit? Uh, I mean, if you do, that just shows your incompetence. Uh, but like, don't don't tell people not to take vaccine over your incompetence that you trust this one study of our, of uh, you know out of uh, Argentina, because you know uh, just there's no reason to trust that study over anything else, even out of the other dozens of you know not very good studies as well. So this is this is my main problem with with Brett's misinformation. Two things there, I guess. I, you know, to be fair, and maybe yeah, this is too much of a stretch. I, I don't think he's ever said for people not to take the vaccines. But then, of course, to counter that, you know, that there's so much discussion within the last few podcasts that he's done that are concerned about their their safety. That no, well, I mean, maybe, he, maybe he, I'm maybe I'm being pedantic on that point. He, he pretty much says this uh, that. Oh, I'm not vaccinated, but I'm on prophylactic ivermectin, which is essentially 100% effective when taken properly, which, you know, is not telling people don't take vaccine or, yeah, use ivermectin instead, but effectively, this is what he's doing. And right. yeah, like all the fear mongering on vaccines, how they're like exploding your ovaries and the spike protein is toxic and it doesn't stay in the injection site. All of that shit is creating the vaccine hesitancy that is supposed to like leave, lead you off of vaccines towards this wonderfully safe and wonderfully efficacious ivermectin that Brad thinks is 100% effective. Actually, that, that, that brings me to something I was going to ask you earlier uh, that, that wasn't uh, discussed in the article. And also, I, uh, I wasn't really too much involved in this discussion, but Brett 
did mention it in the rebuttal again, and, and it's been brought up a few times. Uh, they, they, they keep making the claim that the spike protein is, is, is toxic. And I yeah. haven't really heard that claim much else. And a lot of people are really concerned about that claim. So do you want to go over that one? Where, sure. Where, I where, mean, are there some inaccuracies? Yeah, sure. I mean, actually, I think that claim has kind of faded from fashion of the anti-vaxxers. As, as, I mean, there's been a number of things that have kind of been fading in and out of fashion for all the like fear-mongering anti-vax rhetoric. Like initially, people were like concerned about ADE, like antibody-dependent enhancement. That like, oh, you get vaccinated, and all those antibodies will actually like help the virus get into your cells or get into your macrophages, and they'll be like persist there forever and ever. And this has been proven to be, you know, false. There's I've been never, just never heard no that one. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh well, I, I can. I'll get you up to speed on on the latest vaccine. Thanks, <laughs> uh, bullshit. Maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> and people are like, "Oh shit! I I haven't heard that one before. What do you mean, uh, antibody dependent enhancement? Oh, wait till I get to the prion stuff. Oh, the prion stuff is like, what's the next thing? Like that spike protein is somehow like it's a or prion. I guess most people call it in English prion disease with those prion proteins like in mad cow disease, that because the spike protein has this uh, prion-like domain, that it must be also the prion-like protein that can like just start this chain reaction of pro protein is folding and it gets into your brain and you'll have like this, uh, basically essentially the mad cow disease thing where you'll just succumb to, uh, basically you'll, you'll die. Uh, that was popular, I guess, uh, I don't know, three, four months back. And then again, it just faded because you know, like it was complete bullshit. Uh, and then yeah, the spike is toxic thing. So yeah, that was, again, um, uh, like people were just trying to do experiments. They, like what exactly is so bad about COVID that, you know, it, it causes so much pathology and they like, like the cytokine storm, the immune reaction is definitely the number one thing that is really killing people. But they were also thinking, okay, maybe the spike, like there's some something in the virus itself that's so bad. And they like, how about the spike protein? Maybe the spike protein alone, like if it I don't know, breaks off of the virus and then travels around and can like bind to some things and maybe it can mess things up on itself. And if that's the case, then vaccines are like the worst thing you can have because vaccines will just create lone spike proteins in your cells which can then you know exit the cells or break off of cells because they're supposed to be expressed on the cell membrane actually for the immune system to to notice them better but uh, some parts of the some like sometimes actually the spike gets cleaved and and these spike pieces actually get into the blood and travel around the body which is actually a very small concentration it, it has been shown that the lone spikes do persist in the blood of vaccinated patients, but for like a few days and a minuscule concentration of like picogram per milliliter, and they actually much lower concentration or like lower, not much, but lower concentration than what COVID patients actually have. So it's not a vaccine uh, thing exclusively. It also, the same thing happens in patients who have COVID. They also have the uh, circulating spike protein, like lone spike protein, uh, proteins but again the in in small concentration and it gets cleared and it doesn't really present any long-term pathology 
So there was a study out of Solk, out of the lab of Yuri Uri Manor, this Israeli guy, which uh, cool guy, we we actually interacted on Twitter, who has assessed like what okay what happens with like with just the spike, what can just the spike do? So what he did is he took uh, lentivirus and pseudotyped it with the spike protein. Basically, it's a foreign virus that you the the binding the receptor that the it uses they replace it with the the SARS-CoV-2 spike. So and it's an inactivated virus, so it doesn't replicate inside cells. It's basically a research tool to see what the hell happens when this uh, spike binds to different cells. And they noticed that yeah, it binds uh, like it can cre- create some kind of problems with because it binds to the ACE2 receptor. It can create some kind of problems with cells or the mechanisms that rely on the ACE2 receptor. If you like use very high concentration of uh, the pseudotyped molecule, viruses, virions, then yeah, you can uh, mess up the signaling, the angiotensin ringing signaling, the ACE2 uh, re- receptor. Uh, that uh, and the cells in which it enters, if it enters in, in large concentrations, that they can die again. But like, duh, okay, like this is what happens with SARS CoV 2, the, the virus enters, but it's not a lone spike, really, because in that study, it's still a virus, it's a lentivirus with the SARS CoV 2 spike chimera. But in any case, so they did show that, yes, yeah, spike in itself could have problems in large concentrations. But that study out of Salk used the concentration, which is like 40,000 times greater than anything seen in actual patients. And the, the I mean, it wasn't like, even that wasn't complete and utter uh, terrible uh, effects. So they actually concluded that study by Uri Manor that, oh, yeah, it's, it's not good, but at least it's not in, in, in it's, it's not that bad to not vaccinate. Basically, even in concentrations, 40,000 times greater than what's seen in, in vaccinated people, it's, uh, it's not like uh, awful. But all the vaccine skeptics kind of seized on that study, jumped on it and like, oh, see, this says that spike protein alone is skeptics, uh, is toxic. So we can't vaccinate people because all these lone spike proteins will just bind to AC2 receptor and wreak havoc. And people are just going to be, because of the vaccine, they'll have huge problems, which of course, you know, there's been such thing as clinical trials conducted. Nobody had huge problems based on these vaccines. So just because you misread the study uh, out of, you know, the the Salk University does not, you know, like use your, again, your two brain cells to realize that maybe you you have something wrong rather than it's the researchers with decades of experience developing new drugs have mistakenly let, uh, you know, 40,000 people uh, test the vaccine and didn't notice how toxic the spike is from that vaccine. So that was one thing. There was another study okay. also assessing. Now that it's actually the protein. They use the protein, the spike protein alone, the molecule, not a pseudotype virus, but the actual molecule. And they injected it in, in, in mice, not injected, but like through the, they put it in the lungs, like intratracheally, I guess the English okay. word is. So, and what they noticed is those mice develop an immune response. Uh, surprise, surprise, you inject, and the, the dosage, by the way, in those mice was like 100,000 to a million times greater than the dosage seen, the concentration seen in human patients with vaccinated spikes. And those mice didn't die, you know, their lungs didn't explode, 
they had an immune reaction and they lost weight compared to the, the control group. But in two days, they regained the weight and they, you know, went on to recover essentially from that huge, huge insult with, with the huge amount of spikes. So in a nutshell, no, the spike protein itself is not toxic in the doses that you would ever see it after a vaccine. So, and you know, that just the, cause seeing Brett repeat that shit is like so disappointing and misinforming. Like now this could be in bad faith because it has been shown in number of times that this is not true. Why do you keep repeating that? <coughs> Sorry. Well, if the, if the mice lost a, a whole lot of weight from that, I, I think I got to get myself some of that uh, high end <laughs> spike protein and it'll help me out a uh, bit. Um, there, there are better ways to <laughs> lose weight. I think spinach. Uh, yeah. You could just get COVID. At least it's a slower dose. People lose weight. <laughs> kidding. I'll, I'm kidding. I'll, I'll pass on COVID. that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not, not the best idea, but I think Brett uh, got to the spike protein being toxic point from uh, Robert Malone, if I'm not mistaken, mm. maybe maybe that that's incorrect. But it, so is that likely where Malone got to that conclusion? And what what are your thoughts on him in general? If if you you have much from what you you viewed on beyond from what you viewed on Brett's conversation with, with Malone as well as Steve Kirsch, because. Yeah, and I've been talking about this with a bit with people lately because they they had the podcast, and you know, you know, uh, Mr. Kirsch gave me uh, an anxiety attack. I think for, <laughs> for, from for listening to him, but you know, Malone seemed um, calm and 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 sober, um, and you know, I I wasn't sure what to make of it at the beginning. I I've been kind of unsure what to make about a lot of the content since uh, Brett had. Uh, uh, get found in Bosch on the, on the show, but um, but Malone, the first thing that that I thought was odd was Malone's claim of being the mRNA in or sorry, the in, inventor of the mRNA vaccine. And I thought, well, that's substantial. And you know, I didn't look ever into the before this the, the the history of mRNA technology and who invented what. And you know, I've been mostly focusing on on just having discussions with people and more of the political aspect of, of the, the 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 shit show that has been the pandemic the past year and a half. Um, but just from uh, sort of grazing over the uh, general information that I first came across on mRNA and mRNA vaccines, I didn't find anything on uh, on Dr. Malone. I also seen that this seemed to be like an endeavor that's sort of gone on since the 60s that seemed to be the, the hypothesis phase, phase in the 60s. I may be having this, some of this incorrect. And if anybody wants to hold me to that, I, I really don't care. I'm just giving you the general sense uh, like it right. seemed to be like in the hypothesis stage in the 60s and there was some development in the 80s and then it's just sort of gone on from there and that he claimed that he was the sole inventor and then you know I, I sort of looked into his um, the, his publications and, he, and you know these are all papers that you know I'm not going to get a whole lot out of from reading but a lot of them did look significant uh, in the, this field that he was a co-author on but at the same time, like that, it just seems like a leap. So, 
Uh, yeah. Do you, is this likely the, the, the source where, where, where Brett got these ideas from and what do you, you make of uh, Dr. Malone in, in general right. and, and, and on, on the stuff that I just brought up there? Sure. Well, just to the first point, I don't know if this is like the source, if it was Dr. Malone that gave the, the spike is toxic uh, like it could have been like Tess Laurie or it could have been actually Gert Vandenbosch. I mean, this, this idea that, you know, vaccines are the devil and there's just so many bad things about them. That we I, I don't think it would be Vandenbosch. I think I, I don't, maybe I'm wrong there too. Maybe he did bring up, I think his concern, which I can't really, I don't understand and also can't make sense of and sounds odd. And I haven't really heard anybody else say, but it's mostly on, like the, the 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 mutations where he's concerned, I, I don't think he's brought up anything about the, the, the toxins. Well, yeah, mutations and his 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 pet project are like these natural antibodies, these IgM right, antibodies right, 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 that right. somehow are much better than anything that vaccine vaccines could generate. But uh, yeah, like doesn't matter where he got it from; it's it's bullshit. <laughs> so whoever, yeah, the originator of the bullshit doesn't really doesn't really matter. Now, in terms of uh, Robert Malone, he yeah, he did come across as a very kind of nice guy, very measured guy, uh, like intellectually deep, at least. Like <laughs> maybe <clears throat> on the background of Steve Kirsch, <laughs> he did seem that way, or even Brett Weinstein. But uh, um, I didn't investigate too deeply like his uh, claims to like being... I don't know if he, I don't think he claims he's the in, the inventor of mRNA vaccine, like definitely not the COVID vaccine, like, like he's, I think he claims he's the inventor of mRNA vaccine technology. That's right. Which, uh, you know, I mean, again, like what, what does it mean, the inventor of technology? The idea is, yeah, you're right, you're right. It's, I don't know, it's like 60s or at least like the 70s. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious idea of, why don't we just deliver mRNA into the cells to do what the hell we want? I mean, it could be for vaccines. It could be for gene therapy. It could be for, uh, I don't know, other reasons. So, like, you can deliver DNA. You can deliver RNA. DNA is a bit of an issue because you need a, a vector. Uh, and mRNA was an issue because, you, you like, we didn't have the technology to make sure it doesn't degrade and to make sure that, like, lipid nanoparticles were really the enabler of mRNA uh, delivery technology. And I don't know, like a lot of people were working on this and uh, whoever wants to claim credit, he, who's the first, who's not the first, to, to, to me, I mean, I don't really care. And like from just tangentially from what I heard, there, there were other people uh, also working on this. And there's this, like, if you go on Wikipedia, who's actually accredited as the inventor of mRNA uh, technology, uh, there are a couple other people, uh, it wasn't Hungarian, it doesn't, doesn't matter, but basically, yeah. yeah, Robert Malone's name does not, like, is definitely not among the first to pop up, and I think this is actually, like, what's driving a lot of his uh, pretty much behavior, I think he's been kind of hurt by not being recognized, and he's been spending his past, I don't know, however many years trying to correct for that, and just goes around and tries to make sure that people hear it from him that he is the inventor of mRNA technology. That's what like his website is all about and all his publications on it. Basically, there's just one core message that Dr. Malone is trying to promote. And that message is Dr. Malone is the inventor of mRNA technology. 
And so maybe everything else is just kind of the the way to to accomplish that or to get him you know publicity to get himself heard maybe that's yeah the reason why he goes onto those podcasts and says those things but the things he says are pretty uh questionable let, let's 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 be generous here so uh and uh yeah and i mean i challenged him on twitter on a couple of points and i mean he's definitely not as bad as steve kirsch who is a Oh, I don't want to throw enough enough insults for the for the past week, but yeah, Steve I, I think, we can, just I think not... we can we can leave Steve Kershaw to the side for the, this this general conversation. Yeah, let's let's do that. But uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah. So uh, basically, I don't know. Do we do we do you want uh, anything else on on the topic of Robert Malone or, or no? No, I was just wanting to get, get 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 your your general sense. I I just have, have been trying to 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 figure out like what's going on with him in in general and it, and it's 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 an interesting mystery so i just want oh yeah yeah on. oh actually good point uh, that i almost forgot to bring up because okay. i think he he kind of claims that he has some kind of like big pedigree in drug development and he's like knows all these fda people and this kind of makes you think that he's very qualified in drug development but then he says things that are so completely in, in inadequate like the vaccine wasn't tested in animals before being tested in humans. Robert Malone says this. And I'm like, what? Like, this is not something a person with drug development experience should be claiming because it's like so ultimately not true. And even like in the same podcast, Steve Kirsch produces the graph of rat ovaries where he claims, oh, the, the lipid nanoparticles peak in red ovaries that, you know, like should give you pause. If you know, red ovaries, animals, you just said vaccines weren't tested animals, like anything going on, like any alarm bells in your head? No? Okay, maybe. So yeah, like definitely I'm not sold on Robert Malone's competence in drug development. And whatever research he might have done in the 80s on, on mRNA technology is one thing, but like I don't know if he's qualified to uh, assess the safety or efficacy of vaccines or ivermectin, to be honest. So I well, guess with that we can we can we'll, yeah. we'll we'll see how this this mystery then involves over the coming months or or maybe doesn't. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, another one that. Uh, um, Brett and Heather were, were taking issue with is um, that there was the uh, testis, testicular dysfunction study on uh, rats and yeah. uh, they, they, they took issue with that and I'll note as well and, and you know correct me if, if I'm sort of misreading you guys but later on you, you note uh, that adverse effects or lack thereof in animals do not necessarily translate to the same effect in humans. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but I mean, this is not the main point, neither of us, ours, nor of Heather's. I mean, she said it in passing, like, but I, I, I noticed it because it was like, which is in rats, <laughs> rats are not humans. And I'm like, wait, but this is the argument you make about red ovaries being a huge, you know, safety issue. Why are you so dismissive of red testicles? Like, what's the discrimination here? Male rats are <laughs> humans too. <laughs> anyway, um, 
but yeah, the main point she makes is that somehow she, like that study that we cite, I don't think she read past the abstract. And the abstract is like saying that the biggest effect was observed in combination of ivermectin and uh, verapenil or whatever. I forget the, the second drug name. But obviously there was also an effect of ivermectin alone. So if she actually would have read the study and looked at the tables, when I posted the tables, I highlighted the differences. Uh, in just that study, it's clear there is a negative effect on rat testicles of ivermectin. And it's not the only study. I mean, there's many other studies that have shown a negative effect on male reproductive toxicity of ivermectin. And I've, in that thread and on Twitter, I also provided a couple other studies. So if, if she even bothered to look into this topic, she wouldn't be embarrassing herself claiming that somehow we did not show. Like she, and it actually shows the opposite. No, it doesn't show the opposite. Like read the damn paper, Heather. Or go on, on on Google and actually like do some research. I mean, we're we're not pulling it out of thin air that ivermectin has uh, testicular toxicity. We're using like FDA guidelines that you know we're we're going off of and providing primary references for what those guide guidelines are based off of. So yeah, that was ridiculous. Okay. Uh, I think I have just just one more from uh, sort of re relaying what what Brett and Heather had to say and, and just let you to let you issue responses. And then I got a a couple uh, questions of my own that, uh, just from reading through. Um, or actually, maybe I have two more. Just one note that that Heather made or Brett and Heather uh, on they, they they took issue with you mentioning uh, the the point where you guys said, "Does this pass the smell test?" And uh, Heather quoted uh, Richard Dawkins that failure of imagination is not an argument. Yeah, well, basically, this is all they're going by their imagination. That's that's their you know foundation on which they're basing the ivermectin effectiveness, ivermectin's hundred percent efficacy of preventing COVID. Their imagination. It's purely that's the only thing that it's based on. And yeah, failure of imagination, I guess, is not blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you know, imagination is not something we use in science to make life and death decisions. So, you know, if when, if, uh, anyways, but uh, yeah, they're, they're not providing any explanation why the hell they choose to trust that Carvalho study, whether it's you know, purely imaginable, 100% efficacy, which does not pass the smell test, at least for me. No, I don't trust it for a millisecond. Uh, am I claiming fraud? No, I'm not claiming deliberate uh, misrepresentation of the data, like the, like the actual authors knowingly put this out, put this, you know, fake numbers out, knowing that they're fake. I don't know who, who, whether they've been confused by, misled by other researchers were by patients not reporting uh, positive tests. I don't know what the hell happened, but I know those data are false. And I'm not sure why, like, uh, Brad's like, like, this is one argument they're making that, oh, and it's so funny. Yeah, I, I mean, I pointed it out in a tweet that I don't trust this study for a second. And it, like, because Brett and Pierre Corey did an episode on it, and they're like, 
Well, unless the numbers are fooling us, you know, 100%, like ivermectin is 100% effective, unless the numbers are fooling us. And I'm like, yeah, Brad, the numbers are fooling you. This study is, you know, very badly conducted. It's not randomized. It's not double blind. It's not placebo controlled. And he thought in the podcast that what I'm pointing at is not reporting bias, but some sort of a placebo effect which again is like for someone not to understand what I mean by the comment that the study is not randomized and not double blind to think that I'm implying that it's the placebo effect that is able to explain the hundred percent effectiveness of ivermectin rather than reporting bias, basically fake or false data. This is like beyond I mean, this is just demonstrating the sheer incompetence, again, of Brett and Heather, who just, you know, why would you invent, again, or overabundance of imagination? Like, they can't fathom that the study could be false, that they have to invent reasons why it must be true. And, yeah, like, placebo effect? What? Anyway, so, yeah, it's, it's a travesty. And then the 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 last one, um, that they they took issue with. Uh, I r- remind me specifically now. I think it was in regard to questioning the effectiveness of ivermectin. But you cited uh, an Alberta Health Services report, and <laughs> I, I, you know, on one yeah, on on one hand, um, uh, I'll admit I I didn't get a whole lot out of Brett and Heather's. Um, additional, uh, uh, you know, uh, substantiation as to the the significance of that. They, they just seemed a bit scorn about it. Maybe, maybe I missed something in their argument. Right? They just seemed to hand wave it away. But uh, I, I did uh, have a look through the report, and you know, may, maybe this isn't the best argument on on my part. But I did see it was approved and revised by uh, Dr. John Conley who was recently in a debate with uh, Dr. Kimberly Prather of UC San Diego and Dr. David Fisman from University of Toronto. Uh, and he made a, a lot of absolutely ridiculous claims about the lack of, a lack of effectiveness of, of masks and you know, the, the, the perils of masks and, and you know, the, the dismissal of airborne transmission and all of that. You know, maybe that's just in, indicting a person you know, involved in the report instead of having to look at the whole report. But that's one thing that popped into my mind. And, and I also didn't really understand um, Brett and Heather's overall concern. They just sort of said, oh, Alberta Health Services, who, who are they? But They're uh, just yeah. Canada haters. You know that. That's all yeah. they do. Well, just, we're simple I'm folk kidding. out west I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, just get, get your, your thoughts on, on the report and, and Brett and Heather's concern with the report. Yeah, I don't know, like what they're concerned. I I didn't I didn't know the the like the author or what his you know other claims are. You know, it just well, it, it wasn't even know, one of one of the authors. He, he like to be fair, he's one uh, the people approving and revising it. Mm. A single okay. author, and I, I can't remember who that person was. So yeah, I don't I don't see any methodological issues with that report and it's just one of the several uh, 
meta-analysis that have been done and just, you know, skeptical. And it's just, I think, completely warranted skepticism of uh, ivermectin effectiveness just because it hasn't yet been proven to a high enough standard. And, you know, this is essentially what the report is pointing out. And that's... I don't think that's news to anybody. So I don't know what what their problem with it was, but and I, to be honest, I don't really care. It's <laughs> you, it's yeah. no, I mean it's such a minor issue to to. But you, you, you remember so that. we cite a bad report, like okay, well, you cite a better one, but basically you you don't. Uh, still, it's not about like which reports you rely on, which meta analysis you rely on. You just rely on this one Carvalho study with 100% efficacy to. Uh, claim that ivermectin is something uh, 100% effective. This is like, and, and, and you <laughs> tell me that, you know, the Alberta Health Services meta-analysis is bad while you actually trust the Carvalho study? Like, these are such huge disparity in, like, double standard that it's not even funny. Yeah, uh, so. fair enough. And I, I think Brett and Heather should have, elaborated further on their point on that i i i wasn't understanding what they were getting at and they, they said they said they're going to write something in response yeah, to you guys at some I'm point so we'll we'll, we'll we'll see what happens there i guess yeah um, i'm still yeah. waiting to to for them to write or explain why they trust this carvaya study over anything else so yeah yeah i'll, I'll move on from relaying what, what they had to say and you know if anybody else is interested it's the most recent episode of uh the the dark horse podcast and you can watch that and and take that uh take what what you will from that and the rebuttal of of yuri and and, and uh, claire berlinski um so then from me reading through it uh, you guys brought up the uh, youtube terms of service and you know that that uh, a couple of the episodes were, were promptly brought down and um Maybe I misread it a bit, and because you guys just stated it, you, you didn't really lean on it too much. But um, I'm not really a huge fan of the YouTube terms of service, and really under these terms of service, you know, my show should be you know flagged on on on, on a on, on a couple points like uh, non pharmaceutical uh, intervention because it, you know it leans on the WHO and. You know, uh, a lot of stuff discussed on here has gone against the WHO. They haven't had adequate uh, policies on masks, and um, they they have they've you know been leaning too heavily on uh, social distancing and all that. Not that social distancing is bad; it's a good idea, but that masks are where the the big point of focus should be. So there's a lot of things that I've said or that that guests have said that are completely you know. Um, contradicting the, the WHO. So I, um, I, I'm not sure that the YouTube terms of service is really the best thing to, to bring up, or maybe, you know, I just misread you and it's just, you know, it's something that you guys are sort of stating in passing that, you know, this is what, you know, this occurred at this point and, and then uh, Brett stuff. Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll tell you a secret. <laughs> we actually, had a huge, bigger section in there that uh, I think it, it got moved into, I think, the first or the second 
uh, Substack posts by Claire. So the, like on the freedom of speech and where does that like end? Uh, if uh, like where does your freedom of speech sh- should it end anywhere and where like actually can lead to killing people if they trust your arguments should should you still get the right of free speech and what is the right of free speech on a private platform which has terms of service that you agree to and essentially they can be as arbitrary as possible I mean as, as they want and uh, like complaining about it is you know if you don't like it find a new platform so i mean but those are really issues i'm much less interested in for uh, than maybe even claire that because i'm not like i'm not an influencer i don't i don't blog i mean i don't yeah i don't have a youtube channel and uh, whatever to me and uh, i mean i i'm not a fan of censorship by any stretch of the imagination and again, I'm not. Pro- I'm probably not supporting uh, what YouTube has done by removing Brad's videos because I think actually it had like the the Streisand effect mm-hmm. that uh, more people actually you know downloaded it from other platforms or viewed it that would have otherwise if uh, you know Brad didn't claim that he's being censored and like the government is, is suppressing good information about like this magical drug. Uh, and yeah, I'm just not like in general, I'm just not a fan of censorship uh, because I know it can very quickly disintegrate into, uh, you know, today you support censorship and then it actually censored something that you think, you know, shouldn't be censored. And uh, growing up in the Soviet Union, I know <laughs> all too well that, uh, yeah, censorship is a very slippery slope. And now even with like Trump and social media, like I, I, I mean, as, as much as I... I don't want to say hate Trump. I'm not a fan of Trump. I don't want to. I don't want to say I hate him, but I'm not. I'm definitely not his fan. But seeing him censored on Twitter and like Facebook, that to me was uh, very reminiscent of like Soviet Union. Yeah, I'm definitely case, not a not a Trump fan either. Um, yeah, and I was very concerned about the the whole Trump Twitter ban. That just you know, this this company is mm-hmm. taking down the. The, the the most significant international uh, head of state and head of government. Uh, I yeah, think, a lot, I think a, lot, a lot more people should have been concerned about that rather than, oh, I hate that dumb-haired asshole and, you know, he's taken off and hooray. Very, very, very short-sighted. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I, I think that there's definitely a bigger debate that should be had about censorship. And, uh, yeah, I, but I think it's it's a bit tangential to like this situation i mean not that it i mean it's just i think right now we should focus on like the medical stuff and to make sure we get it right and then we can have the debate about like oh is brett's monetization like taken away fairly or not fairly or if it you know uh, terms of service on a private platform does that you know is it censorship or is that like uh, you know, freedom to conduct business and, and all the, I mean, there's definitely like a debate to be had, but like, I think now is not the time. The time right now is let's, let's figure out the actual truth about, uh, you know, what's safe, what's effective vaccines versus ivermectin and get that message corrected. And then we can, you know, once, hopefully once the pandemic is in the rear view mirror, we can then have all these 
debates about free speech and, and whether like uh, oligopolies, technical oligopolies have gotten way too much power and can we yeah. reform it and blah, 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 and all that stuff. No, I, I respect that. I, I think I, I disagree a, a tiny little bit. I think we could hold both simultaneously and that, you know, you know, even though I'm getting more and more concerned about what, what Brett's having to say, and I haven't really made up on my mind of it a whole lot because, you know, I'm, I, I, I have an issue with, with, with people like myself who don't have no scientific background and really jumping to conclusions. So I'm keeping an open mind, but I'll say that more and more as time's going, as time goes on, I'm getting more and more concerned about uh, what, what Brett's saying and, and, and how he's, he's clinging on to, to some of the, 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 the these ideas, but yeah, that I am just adamantly opposed to what YouTube's doing to him. And it, it's, it's, the like there's there's a point of the argument for well you know you can find another platform but like these some of these companies are getting so immense that they you know there, there's a ma- major antitrust issue going on and some mm-hmm. of the some of a couple of the billionaires and some of these big companies it's it's beginning to be what things were like you know a hundred years ago with like carnegie and, and rockefeller where yeah, it's it's just not an issue of oh well, free enterprise. Don't don't worry about it. Find something else. It, it, it's a bigger problem there. But yeah, I I I I I've taken that from you already. You know, before actually that that, no, that, that, mean, that, that, that that you're you're more, you're more worried about the science and just looking at that. And all yeah, that. absolutely. I I mean, I definitely I think maybe I stated it a little too too broadly. That I mean, I am much more concerned about the science than this free speech discussion. Right. I'm not saying like nobody well, no. should have or, or that it shouldn't be had concurrently. Absolutely. Like if you want to have discussion on free speech, by all means, it's just, I'm not like now interested in it all that much. And yeah, that, on, this, on at the same time, I definitely agree that yeah, YouTube shouldn't be taking down those videos as you know, bad as they could be might be, but yeah, like censorship now is not a good time. Like, uh, or I don't know if anywhere, any, any time is a good time for it, even though, yeah, like legally they might be within their right to do so. I'm just as, just as you, I'm not comfortable with having YouTube delete videos over their, you know, policy. And yeah, I think, you know, we have to probably have a discussion at some point where does YouTube, because it, it did morph into essentially uh, like a platform for expression rather than just a business for, mm. you know, people posting their cat videos. <laughs> yeah. oh, I miss just the, the days of, of cat. <laughs> Recrawling and yeah. Pe- pe- people, but, falling, people falling off their bikes and stuff like that. Those were the days, man. Those, yeah. those were the days. Um, okay. And then uh, one thing you guys mentioned, and, and this I'm, I'm really not too sure about this, and you know maybe I just haven't paid enough attention, but you mentioned um, uh, uh, earlier on in the article about um, um, oh I should find the exact line that you guys had to clarify this a bit more. So bear with me, everybody, and my lack of preparation. But it was, let's see, find it, Josh. What was, was it? About, Maybe I can like help out. Yeah, you could probably remember off the top of your head something about many of his uh, followers um, uh, campaigning behind 
Uh, I think something uh, a component of his message. Do do do. Uh, it's a bit too broad. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was a bit a bit too broad. Um, I mean, there's this paragraph. The Weinstein has become. Yeah, sorry about that, everybody. I'm not the uh, sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just after the 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 YouTube terms of service comment, you note, um, you know many of his followers finding that evidence of conspiracy. Now, I, I think you know, with, within what, what some of what Brett and Heather have been saying, there, there's sort of some uh, touching in on, on that, that sort of concept. And I think that a lot of people who are, who are you know, really critical of, of Brett and Heather o- over the long term um, have, have really jumped on this trend. And I think a lot of people have really overreached this and, and, and have been, you know, sliming Brett and Heather for a long time as just being conspiracy theorists. And this would have, you know, you pertain, of course, to the, um, uh, uh, the issue where you and Brett had some, some collaborate or maybe not collaboration, but d- discussions, uh, of course, the, the, the lab agreement, lab, ag- ag- yeah, ag- yeah. agreement, yeah, agreement yeah. And discussion. Yeah. The, the, the lab on the lab leak hypothesis mm-hmm. and, um, and then there's just sort of the idea that goes along with that, that, you know, so many people are just, you know, hang on to everything that he has to say. Um, it, now, it, is there much evidence that there there are that many people who who listen to Brett's program that are that are finding all this like evidence of conspiracy, or is it just like a bad sample off of Twitter? I, I'm 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 just unsure of of how much of his his audience is like leaning on, you know, some sort of like hardline conspiracy. I, I know a lot of people who, who listen to the program and, and I've listened to not before the pandemic, every episode, but I think I've, I've listened to almost every episode um, on, on his pandemic coverage. And, you know, every, everybody I've talked to have like enjoyed a lot of what he had, had to say and are also kind of concerned about the stuff that he's been saying lately. So I'm just not too sure if, you know, um, how many of his uh, followers and, and what that specifically entails are actually um, seeing like uh, 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 some sort of active conspiracy going on. Right. Well, <clears throat> I, I think it's tough to like put an estimate on the percentages, but just going off of comments under his videos where like, there's a lot of positive comments, uh, I think there's a substantial number of people who think that, or who agree with Brad that there is this, you know, pharma conspiracy, big pharma conspiracy, or suppression of ivermectin and blah, blah, blah. So, um, yeah, I think you know, how many or what percentage? Or, I, I mean, I definitely think that most people, even those people who watch Brett and Heather, are still most of them are still reasonable people who are able to discern um, misinformation or complete utter bullshit like conspiracy theories about like big pharma from reasonable conspiracy theories like the lab leak. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Although, I mean, it's the lab leak is, I guess, by definition of a conspiracy theory, but it doesn't make it wrong. 
right because there's been a conspiracy potential to suppress what happened doesn't make it wrong and uh, obviously everything is still unproven in terms of the, like the lab league origin and it's not a theory it's a hypothesis and both like the natural hypothesis and unproven lab league hypothesis are unproven and it's funny though that uh, I, I think now that the lab league hypothesis is in fashion a lot of the people like give Brad a lot of credit that for being right. And of course, you know, we don't know yet, but he did, you know, promote the lab leak hypothesis early on. And just because it's in fashion now, doesn't make Brad more qualified on any other topics, especially medical topics. Is the credit for him, is the credit for him being right? Or like the same reason that you're getting credit now or Alina Chan's getting credit now is that you got, you guys were right in that this wasn't, a crazy thing that should be talked about and that the the people who were you know suppressing the conversation about this important topic were well the in certain cases the crazy ones or in a lot of cases just malicious ones i i don't know like what exactly he's getting credited for being right about whether it's yeah like definitely that suppressing it was not the right thing to do it shouldn't be suppressed and it's not a crazy conspiracy theory it's about a hypothesis yeah in terms of that he was right but it, like that doesn't translate towards being right in any other domain and as i mentioned like on a different podcast like trump was also i guess right in that it should be suppressed and a lot of people <laughs> would not trust Mr. Trump's opinion on pretty much anything. So I'm not sure why, like, whatever Brett's position was on the lab leak hypothesis somehow qualifies him to give out medical advice on vaccines or ivermectin. So this this was the only point that that I wanted to make on this. Okay, now I I got you. Um, And you mentioned the uh, Tess Lowry, uh, uh, what what, what she's written, and uh, Mm -hmm. you're not a fan. No. <laughs> so so well, I, so I, I'm wondering um you you write that that, that uh well to, to quote to, she has a, a phenomenally insane paper. I'm just wondering <laughs> um in, in what regard and maybe again this is a problem that you had in the editorial process because I as I I watched one video with, with Tess Lowry and I she seemed to lack scruples I would say for my assessment. Again, like this, I can only dive in so far, not being a scientist, but I wasn't sure what she was trying to get at with a lot of points. But all the same, yeah. like that, uh, uh, can you can you elaborate on what what's wrong with the paper? I don't think you know. I need to elaborate any further than the two quotes that we have in okay. in this paragraph. Uh, the Tess Lowry, I don't know Lowry, paper yeah. calls. COVID-19 vaccines unsafe for human use. And that same paper advises that preparation should now be made to scale up humanitarian efforts to assist those harmed by the COVID-19 vaccines. Like if if that is not insane, (laughs) uh, I I don't know what sane then is for you because that that is like, I mean, insane in a hyperbolic sense, but this is the completely ridiculous claims. And yeah, if you actually read, I mean, we link to the paper that, that she published, which is entitled Urgent Preliminary Report of Yellow Card Data. Yellow cards like VAERS in, in the UK. Right, right. 
So I mean, it's just like if you if you read it, it's you realize just how you know un, un, unsubstantiated or overreaching and just plain. I don't have like uh, I'm trying to come up with non-insulting <laughs> adjectives and failings. So let's just leave it at that. I I, I got gotcha. Um. Oh, it, the you, you note. And this is one thing I'm not, uh, I'm not too sure about either. That the, uh, and and I wasn't sure what you're referring to. You wrote that the the impression that listeners might get from the podcast is children have no risk from the disease. Are, are you referring to a specific episode or like the podcast in general? The children can die from COVID is a point worth stressing, given the emphasis that Weinstein and other vaccine skeptics have placed on the vaccine's risks to children. The impression <clears throat> listeners might get from Weinstein's podcast is that children are at no risk from this disease. Uh, well, I mean, the podcast with like the um, uh, Save the World podcast, they have on multiple occasions uh, talking about that oh, vaccinating children. Like, mm-hmm. Why would we want, want to vaccinate children who have virtually no risk from of dying from COVID or uh, I, I like I I wouldn't say that this is like exactly the claim like zero risk although they they might be I don't I have to revisit the transcripts that we use but uh, obviously the implication is that uh, we shouldn't vaccinate children because their risks from vaccines outweigh the risks children might have from COVID and it's just again very silly thing because the risks from vaccines to children are like so so small like oh, I, I would say even close to zero then uh, or at least like two young people I, I don't know if we have reports but again I make this point uh, often that children are actually the the least uh, dangerous population for vaccines like because I mean children are vaccinated all the time and children between ages of like five and 12, or between even after like 12 and 18, but even between five and 12, they're like some of the healthiest humans ever. Like this age, period age, you can do no wrong. I mean, they can eat whatever the hell they want. They, they, like, they break whatever the hell they want. Uh, they heal very quickly. Like even brain trauma at that age is, is very quickly. They recover. And I mean, there's evolutionary reasons for that. But uh so, and yeah, they get jabs all the time and they don't suffer any ill effects and they, they get sick all the time. And like the, the viral diseases they have in childhood are, they, they very easily get over it. Like you get, like get measles when you're 40, you're, you're going to be screwed. You get measles when you're a kid, like no problem. Basically, <clears throat> their risks of vaccination are like the lowest. And uh, being afraid that like children might suffer ill effects from vaccines is, I think, driven by very like not driven by not rational thinking, but irrational of, you know, we have to be protective of all children. And this is just an instinct. But if you think rationally and examine the data of vaccine negative effects on different you know, age groups, children are the least least. Uh, affected so actually like there's virtually no risk to children if you vaccinate them with COVID-19 vaccines 
and there's benefit to the both this very same children, especially with like new variants like Delta, we see that they affect more and more people in the younger groups and more and more like younger and younger people are getting bad COVID from Delta. So there's definitely a protective element on the vaccines. But most importantly, the it's a public health benefit that you need to vaccinate as many people as possible to get herd immunity and children and teenagers are the biggest spreaders of COVID. They're like the both in terms of uh, shredding, shedding the virus and interacting with more people. So it's been showing shown in research time and time again that this is the age category that spreads the COVID the most. So you actually need to, like if you really want to stamp out COVID quickly, you need to vaccinate those categories. And I think the risk, like the individual risk to like any any potential child or teenager to be vaccinated is very, very small. And the benefit to society to justify that risk overwhelmingly outweighs that risk. So we should absolutely do it. We should absolutely vaccinate children and we shouldn't like spread fear mongering just out of our, again, our ignorance of what exactly can happen to, to children because in, in past vaccinations, uh, like children have had the least amount of negative effects. And in this case, of course, you know, we'll have to run clinical trials first and they have, they have run clinical trials. They have shown in some age categories that it's safe and we, we have to verify, of course, for all, for all age categories in which the vaccine will be deployed. But so far we have very good safety data for, for children. So I think, uh, I mean, the, it, to me, this is a no brainer that we do need to vaccinate children. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to to clarify that uh, because I, I wasn't sure if you're referring to a specific podcast or the podcast in general. Because I'll say, um, yeah, per, perhaps that's the case. Like in the the what is it, the Save the World podcast, that maybe somebody could get that impression. And then again, too, like people can get all sorts of impressions. Um, but I, I'd say from. Uh, but yeah, from 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 that one in particular, uh, like just could from, be also from, the girl from from, from way, yeah, possibly that too, yeah. But even just from weighing it, you know, they, they might get that you know a concept that it, you've outlined there. But as a whole, throughout the like the the podcast itself as as a series or whatever you want to call it, uh, I you know for for whatever flaw they may have in what they've been st- saying lately. Uh, both Brett and Heather have been very emphatic on, you know, the harms of COVID to absolutely everybody. And, you know, early on they were, but when there was like a big focus on, you know, just deaths versus not deaths, you know, a disregard of possibilities of long COVID and all that, which just turned out to be a gravely severe issue. And, yeah. uh, um, and just, just, just looking at it that way, they, they were very adamant on you know nobody should get this this is harmful to to everybody um so but yeah within the confines of of some of these more and more recent podcasts where they're they're weighing certain issues but as a whole like that that is one one point that they've been very accurate on and uh very early on and 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 very adamant on is that nobody should have this and this is very harmful to everybody yeah um then uh one one question i have um i i i i i just don't 
it's it's not that I I don't have any pushback. I just don't really understand this. I was just wanting to, you to explain this to me. Um, what is the significance of the the half life of of ivermectin and the concern <laughs> with that? And the Dagen threshold, as Brett Weinstein had put it. Um, so basically, oh right, yeah, yeah, they, they they did break that up. That the the yeah they they called yeah the they they, they had uh, a, a little a uh, little riff on that one. Yeah, yeah. right. The the the, the Deegan threshold. Right. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm just wondering like um, what what effect that is and um, uh, how how that applies. Sure, it's, it's basically the logic of using a weekly dose of ivermectin for prophylactic purposes. Uh, basically, we know that its half-life is so short that a you know, weekly regimen would, would offer inadequate protection based on, like, the, if, uh, basically, for antiviral activity to occur, the uh, agent that has the activity, in this case, ivermectin, needs to be present in the plasma or in the cells to provide that activity. And basically, the, the initial idea why ivermectin might be effective against COVID came out from an in vitro study. Like, they used cells, uh, green monkey cells, in which they, you know, they infected it with uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 and like tested different agents, tested ivermectin and saw that ivermectin inhibits the replication of the virus in those cells. And the concentration that, the, there's a, what, that was effective, unfortunately, it was much higher than actually is ever present in humans uh, after, you know, getting dosed with ivermectin, but it still didn't stop people from then trying ivermectin in high doses, but obviously not as high as uh, uh, the ones that uh, you know would translate to the same concentration as in cells, because it's just not allowed. Like under the current approval, that concentration is just not anybody, doc, not not no doctor would prescribe it because it just probably would be toxic, or at least it's just haven't hasn't been proven safe and non-toxic. But so they use a lower concentration, but okay, it doesn't matter. Let them do whatever like study they want. But just based on the pharmacokinetics and or pharmacodynamics of uh, uh, ivermectin, we see that it would very quickly leave the body, or at least <clears throat> it would like the concentration would greatly diminish of ivermectin in the bloodstream or in plasma uh, from the initial dose so that like if you really wanted to maintain any sort of uh, high enough level of ivermectin to be protective on uh, you know any sort of level close to what was observed in the green monkey cells or in cells in general to be able to stop the virus from replicating like if you do if you dose it just once a week, it's absolutely inadequate to have any kind of baseline ivermectin concentration in 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 uh, you know in the blood or in the cells. And so, like, my question is, why does Brad think that you know a weekly dose is enough? Because, like, to me, eighteen-hour half-life is completely inadequate. Because within 
two days you get like uh, I think like a quarter of it left, and then another two days you only you're like as low as one percent, and by the end of the week it's like completely very close to zero. So, like to me, if uh, like the dosing regimen, the like the frequency of dosage dosing for a therapeutic agents agent that you need to be taking you know chronically is usually determined based on the half-life like the developers of drugs look at the half-life and like okay if we want this to persist at the certain enough level in the blood you need to be taking this uh, daily or twice daily like antibiotics or i don't know antidepressants Uh, you need to you know build up baseline concentration and to do that because of the drug's half-life, you need to be taking it like this, this frequently. And if you don't, you, you're not going to get that baseline concentration. And in the case of, you know, antibiotic, it's not going to be as effective or uh, the uh, antidepressant, same thing. It's just not going to, you know, get the right inhibitor reactivity. Same thing with antivirals. Like, and if you're taking, like, prophylactically an antiviral, uh, you need to maintain, uh, like you need, you can't have like peaks and valleys where you have like two days of adequate level and then five days of the week, it's a fraction of the initial dose because that fraction is just not going to be as effective as a prophylactic, uh, you know, concentration. So if like the half-life of ivermectin does not support its use as a prophylactic antiviral, uh, you know, drug, uh, in a in a weekly dosing regimen. Now they come back to that and say, "Oh, but we see it working as a anti-worm drug, where they take it prophylactically once a week or once a month, and it still works. And why does it work back like in those scenarios? And you think it wouldn't work here? Well, I mean, anti-worm drug is very different because it's it's not it's not building up a concentration in your body that is pre- preventing like a new virus coming in and, you know, so that in there's a baseline concentration that will just kill it. Most likely a deworming agent either just kills the worms that are already inside. And, you know, once a weekly, once monthly is enough. You kill the existing worms and all their, their larvae, their eggs, and just once is enough. Or if like prophylactically as well, if, if you already have uh, those uh, eggs, in your system or those worms in your system, you take it once, you kill them all, and that's it. You don't need any more. And it can last you for, for months and until you, I don't know, ingest new, new worms in yourself. Or, again, is a prophylactic agent if you don't have worms yet or symptoms of worms yet, but you might have their larvae, their, their eggs or whatever. Like, And if you take ivermectin, you just kill them and you don't have it anymore. But as a, uh, you know, h- how it works in that scenario is very different how it can work as an antiviral. So uh, like saying, look at those studies that they used the once monthly is absolutely inadequate to support its use, its use as an antiviral based on, again, the study in cells that were dosed by the, these high concentrations. So this is, you know, I'm to a person with, again, um, baseline understanding of drug development or pharmacology, he would get it. Like, he would get this comment, like, why are you dosing weekly if your half-life is 18 hours? And the person like, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you probably need at least, like, a bi-weekly dosing to have a, you know, a good enough steady-state baseline. 
But, you know, yeah, maybe, uh, but to Brett Weinstein, he's like, we don't know how it's working. It could be working like, uh, okay, he didn't say like a vaccine, but he's like, there's some agents that don't depend on the concentration in the blood, but they're still effective, like vaccines. And I'm like, you didn't just compare vaccines, which just train the immune system and disappear. And right. whatever is left in the immune system is actually doing the work to a small molecule, which you know, it's a small molecule. It's easily degradable, digestible, and gets out of the body very quickly. And there's just no mechanism that at least I can see that it, you know, has any sort of like long-term reservoir. Like he's saying like something completely silly that, oh, maybe it gets stored in the, in the fat tissue. And then on challenge with a virus, it gets released from the fat tissue. Like what? Like, how do you foresee, like, what is the mechanism in your body that will store ivermectin in your fat cells? And then if your lungs get infected with a virus, those fat cells will spew out ivermectin and, you know, neutralize the virus. Like, this is a completely, uh, you know, mythical understanding of biology. And anyway, so... So that is that. So <laughs> I guess, okay. again, I, I took about two hours to answer a very simple <laughs> question. So I think you dozed off in the middle there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I had a nap and, you know, had a shower and, and, and all that. <laughs> uh, no, I was just wondering because, you know, again, this is really outside of my wheelhouse. And, and I was uh, w- wondering the, the, the significance of all that. A um, couple more just, just uh, from reading through. You, you mentioned the that they have a, a misunderstanding with, with the VAERS system. And I, I, for, for everybody who's, who's, who's unaware, you know, explain what the VAERS system is. But uh, it, it, unless I missed something, didn't seem to be too much of an elaboration on that. And again, like you guys had a brevity issue that you, you, you had to be contending with. But the reason I bring this up is, you know, right or wrong, the, that's one of the main things that, well, actually, that's the huge thing that Steve Kirsch is leaning on. But also, like everybody else, you know, Brett and Heather and, and Dr. Malone are, are also, um, there's a, it's a really large component of their argument is, is uh, an array of issues with, with the, the, the various system. And so just not just reading the data, but then how the data is, is, is accumulated in the first place. So, so what, what's there? So yeah, explain to everybody what, what VAERS is and, and, and yellow card and, and all that jazz. And then uh, what's, where, where are they going awry with all that? Sure. Well, I mean, so VAERS is uh, the American System for Vaccine uh, Adverse Events Reporting System. So basically, it's whenever bad things happen after vaccination, health providers and vaccine manufacturers are obligated by law to report this into the centralized symptom reporting system so that it can be investigated. And basically this is so that we catch those very rare, but potentially serious events, which vaccines that get tested in, you know, 40,000 people, which, you know, are deemed safe. Then when they get applied to a hundred billion, a hundred million people, like very rare events can go unnoticed. And so we have this, you know, reporting system and it's, you know, country by country, different countries have them. Some countries 
don't, I guess. I don't know. Like, well, this is all part of uh, pharmacovigilance, basically making sure we catch serious, very rare events. And again, this is by definition, very rare events. So your vaccine is safe, like safer than, I don't know, your, your car your alcohol well a lot of a lot of things so many things things are safer than your car (laughs) that's pretty but i I mean in general like those bad things happen on like once per million once per hundred thousand people vaccinated you know very rare bad things and some people die uh of like anaphylactic shock and so not just this vaccine in general this is bad but on on balance of uh, what the vaccine provides in like number of lives saved, probably in the millions, like just in the U.S. alone, if you consider like COVID mortality and how many people would have gotten COVID had vaccines not been there at all, it's probably millions of lives saved versus millions. It's probably like tens of millions because what, like three, uh, 33? Uh, no, like 600,000 dead out of 33 million. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I, I mean, yeah. I, I get into like these tangents. Why do I do that? Uh, uh, anyway, a, couple, but, a, a person or two. <laughs> right. So basically, uh, so yeah, so that's what the various system is. So that <coughs> uh, these rare events get reported. But uh, in addition to those health providers being obligated to report all these events, it's a self-reporting system so that anybody can report this adverse event from a vaccine, which they think you know could be caused by a vaccine. They report it into the system so that the CDC or however investigates. Like this system is not the compendium of vaccine cause deaths. This is a compendium of what could have been caused by vaccines. Okay, it's weird that my grandma got a vaccine shot and died the next day. But, you know, let, let the experts investigate or, you know, it's usually not my grandma, it's my patient. I'm a doctor, I'm a health provider, I do like vaccines. And then I had some patients die or develop adverse reactions. I put it all in the very system and let the vaccine manufacturers in conjunction with health authorities, regulators, investigate. Is this caused by a vaccine or not? And then they do their thing. They analyze all the data available, probably the autopsy report and all that. And they come to the conclusion. Was this death caused by a vaccine? Was this adverse reaction caused by a vaccine? And if it is, I mean, it goes into a different category. And then they tabulate this, you know, periodically and say, oh, shit, you know, this vaccine is causing, I don't know, the horns start growing in 1.1% of people. Uh, we should probably take it off the market. Yeah, something like that. Uh, but usually, yeah, nothing happens, nothing bad happens. And, you know, these rare adverse events remain rare enough to justify keeping the vaccine on the market. But sometimes even rare events don't justify keeping the vaccine on the market because there's a safer alternative without those rare events. Case in point, AstraZeneca vaccine was pulled after, you know, these thrombosis very rare, very rare cases. But, you know, there's other vaccines that don't have it. So, you know, why risk? People's, you know, not necessarily lives, even just health. It's not like not not all of them are fatal, but you know, it makes sense. You know, if you got if you got a safer alternative, you know, let's just stick with it. And so this VAR system has by now had, uh, I think, uh, close to six thousand deaths in the U.S. reported as potentially 
caused by a vaccine. And again, in the beginning, most of these reports were reported by relatives of people who died after vaccinations. And the spike in, in those deaths was in like reports in, in, I think, February. And then in uh, March, it was like much lower. In April, it was lower still. And in May, there's just a very, very small number of new reports. And these are, these are not proven deaths. I, I reiterate, these are potential deaths that take a long time to investigate. And, you know, eventually they get to the bottom of it, the CDC. And at this point, I think CDC said that only like a handful of confirmed deaths have been linked to a vaccine. So, I mean, all of these uh, reports have been blown out of proportion by people who didn't essentially understand what the hell VAERS is. And they just, oh my God, you know, thousands of people are dying from these vaccines. But even if that was true, if that were true, if like thousands of people were killed by vaccines, on comparison to COVID, which is really, you should... You can't assess vaccine safety in isolation. You need to assess it in conjunction or against the risks of, you know, what is the thing the vaccine is preventing you from contracting or dying from, like COVID. And so, like, millions of people or, okay, 600,000 people in the U.S. have died from COVID mm -hmm. out of, like, three, uh, 33 million cases or, okay, let's take 100 million cases for all the untested asymptomatic cases and so you got like 600,000 out of 100 million. And at the same time, there's been like 150 million vaccinated in the States. And out of those, like 6,000 deaths, 100 times less, right? 100 times less for a higher number of people vaccinated. Like, so vaccines are at least 100 times safer than COVID. And you're still, you're still like concerned. And most likely vaccines are, you know, a thousand or 10,000 times safer because only like, I don't know, 600 or maybe a hundred deaths are really caused by vaccines rather than, you know, people thinking that they might be. And then ultimately they'll be proven not to have been caused by, by vaccines. So this is all like such, again, like, uh, uh, evidence of people not understanding just basic data analysis or just basic math, trying to compare like apples and apples mm -hmm. uh, or people comparing apples and oranges and just, you know, deaths in isolation or deaths even like in absolute numbers of deaths, which seem a lot like, oh my God, 6,000 people. But if you actually compare the rate, the, that rate for actually, I think it's like 150 million vaccinated in the States, if not more, which is minuscule in, in comparison to COVID deaths, death rate, it's minuscule. And all other risks are small. So vaccines are like very safe, very safe comparatively compared to COVID. And uh, like, again, this is what people think seem to misunderstand that we need to compare the vaccine safety, not to vacuum, but to COVID, like the chances of contracting it. And in general, also like population-wise, again, like some people make the case, oh, but I'm so young and healthy. Why the hell do I need to risk my health for, for your vaccine? Or why do I need to risk the health of my children for vaccine? Well, because we're trying to stamp out COVID for everybody so that, you know, your grandma or your parents don't contract it because you're an idiot and, you know, help us, don't help us eradicate it and they don't die from it. That For that, we need herd immunity. For that, we need to vaccinate as many people as possible to prevent transmissions between, you know, new infections and stamp out COVID for good. And the only way we can achieve it, especially with the Delta variant that is just so much more transmissible, is if we vaccinate a high enough proportion of people. 
and not just you know any people, but people who are most likely to transmit it, most likely to be asymptomatic, and those are children, children and teenagers. Those are the, the two biggest transmitters and the people who notice it the least and they're most likely to give it to grandma. So that's why that's why I think you know it, it's, it should be very clear to people why we need to vaccinate, not for just like selfish reasons, but for public goodness, public good reasons. And sometimes it's just you know, people like some countries are less susceptible to understanding this than others, hopefully, or thankfully Canada is like one of the leaders of understanding it and doing a good job about like vaccinating enough, high enough number of people and wide enough number of groups that we're going to get there. Canada is going to be the shining beacon of, of <laughs> the world with eradicating COVID and, and protecting uh, pretty much everybody. Yeah, ultimately. Hope so. And uh, yeah, like the, the point of the, that, that vaccines are not just, you know, an, an individual issue, but a, but a collective issue mm-hmm. that, that really ties into uh, everything that, that, that's gone on the, the, the past year and a half is, you know, there, there hasn't been enough people uh, trying to, to gauge every sort of measure, every sort of action, every sort of intervention. In it's too much of it's been looked at in, in one dimension. And then there's, there, there's all the dimensions and like, you know, the, the, sort of your your proximal collective unit or the broader collective unit and 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 the the individual unit there you know you should be concerned about yourself and it's okay to be concerned about yourself and all that but there's been too much of a focus on that it's then you know trying to look at all three engage all three or even bad messaging in you know protect the community and you'll wear a mask get vaccinated etc etc you know fill in the blank um and that that might even turn you know people away because you know you should let people know that you know that that there's benefit to oneself for all of this and so yeah that, that that's been, been been an issue throughout throughout the whole pandemic is you know looking at one um factor of you know who's being protected instead of looking at them all and, and engaging them all accordingly but uh on the yeah, like you mentioned, the confusion with, with the VAERS system, and I've seen some of that online. Is that people will look at the VAERS system and then think that it's sort of like an official tally, where it, where it's not the yeah. the, the, the reporting yeah. system that it is. But is that the the argument that that Brett's been making? And I, like I've seen Steve Kirsch like take it a step further. Is that like the, the, there's the deaths in the VAERS system, and then it, I can't remember, but it's something like it, it's times ten that or, or something like that like or maybe i shouldn't have said that but you know higher than, <laughs> within what the, the bears system is, is yeah. letting out but but is that the argument <clears throat> sorry that that brett's been making is because <clears throat> i just can't recall has he been going off of um the 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 VAERS data in that regard and saying that that these are the figures I think he's been pretty elusive or evasive about like actually stating that precisely, but he he just like repeats or or refers to other people who have been stating this, um, you know, Steve Kirsch being one of them, or other other people like Tess Laurie and uh, with her yellow card system, and basically, yeah, he doesn't go on record on on repeating their exact wording, but by referring and endorsing them or like retweeting Tess Laurie's. Uh, paper and like putting like emphasis on her on her oh, vaccines are like the worst thing that ever happened to humanity. 
I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but for <laughs> point of emphasis. But uh, basically, he endorses this viewpoint. And yeah, like he never challenged uh, uh, Steve Kirsch on his Save the World podcast, where Steve Kirsch was saying all these nonsense about, yeah, oh man, we're like seeing just 1% of the deaths being reported because there was this study before that said only 1% of like events, adverse events get reported. And so now like they have 5,000 system, 5,000 deaths in the system. Well, I'm not saying it's 500,000 in actuality, but I'm sure the number is like way higher. Of course, it's just stupid because the 1% referred to like mild, mild adverse events, like, you know, fever after a vaccine or headache, which most people don't report because they just don't bother why you want to call your doctor uh, about a headache which is an expected side effect of a vaccine shot. So you just don't report it, obviously. And you can't uh, extrapolate that 1% to the deaths number, which pretty much all deaths that are ever potentially connected to a vaccine get reported just because by virtue of, you know, if somebody dies within, I don't know, like a certain, like two weeks of vaccination, uh, the death, like the coroner, that's, that's obvious question they, they're going to ask and it's probably going to be on their medical history that they've been vaccinated and so it's just like a pretty much automatic uh report to various that, okay you guys should look into this uh, that you know th this person died and they've been vaccinated so it automatically gets flagged and sent to the VAR system for the further investigation and of course the autopsy and all the other reports will show whether you know there is a connection or there isn't so uh, but yeah, and Steve Kirsch has just been fear mongering like crazy on both on the podcast, on Twitter, on his, you know, huge uh, never, never ending blog post that he just keeps adding to. It's like, oh, well, it's been, I like, oh, I just discovered that it's actually 28,000 deaths that have been kind of unaccounted for. Uh, and I think they're due to vaccines. Uh, like, oh my God, dude. Anyways. So yeah, it's it's that kind of misinformation that Brett was, if not like outright repeating, then endorsing and definitely not pushing back on uh, for his guests. And that's why, you know, these are the messages being disseminated through Brett Weinstein that create the vaccine hesitancy and the impression in people that vaccines are just killing people in droves and uh, we exaggerating, like killing people or drop, dropping like flies. This is hyperbole in, uh, you know, in a public uh, or uh, not public, popular opinion piece. So obviously they're not flies, you know, they're not dropping like flies. They don't have wings. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's, but, yeah, it's, <clears throat> yeah, it's like Brett, it's like it, and, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he, he has pointed to this a lot. And maybe somebody will say, ah, Josh, you moron. He has been saying that. I just can't recall. But, yeah, even at, like, let, let's just take the, the the one point that you had. I, I think that that's, that's something to emphasize upon is, <clears throat> yeah, that, that he's talked about this on his show, hasn't, you know, pushed back too much or, or questioned it too much and, you know, references Tess Lowry a lot and, and all of that. And, you know, I, I think that the, there is a, a, a lot of times where he could be questioning this a lot, or even with the, the guests in general, with, with Gerfandet Bosch and, and Steve mm -hmm. Kirsch, where he has them on the show. And, you know, it's okay to have somebody on and, you know, 
I, 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 I'm totally okay with any, I, I absolutely can't stand when somebody brings up like the concept of platforming and all of that. It's all absolute gibberish. But at the same time, like when, you know, Brett has on Steve Kirsch or Garrett Vandenbosch, like there's, there's no pushback. I, I can I can really yeah again against those two and maybe I'm wrong maybe maybe no I, yeah uh, maybe, I, I don't maybe, think maybe. there has been ever any any pushback at least that I've seen in those podcasts. What's platforming? I mean I've heard it before, but I never. Oh, it's it's just the concept of you know you, you talk to somebody, you have them on their show, and if this is you know a bad person or a problematic person that you know you you're bringing on the show, and then you're doing only by default like a negative action by having a, a discussion with this person regardless of, of the context of the conversation if you're pushing back against them you know asking them tough questions it's yeah I, I think a lot of it's rooted from more not you know scientific conversations but more social conversations mm. somebody somebody's very ideological and they'll there's somebody who's very much you know anathema to their ideological positions and then <gasps> that person got platformed by so and so and so you know <laughs> I, I've, I've heard that in a lot of the context of of uh covid so like in 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 the general sense i'm perfectly okay with brett you know and having a, a, a these people a lot of these controversial people and it's kind of interesting but you know y- yeah even though like he's not come out and said like some of these positions you're right in, in pointing out that like he, he you know has some degree of endorsement by you know referencing them or having them on and not giving any sort of, of pushback or anything like that and you know i i don't know why and you yeah, know maybe well, it is because maybe he agrees good. with them yeah that, no, he yeah. definitely agrees with them and it definitely comes across on the podcast that he completely agrees with them it, like in when you see the conversation and the nonverbal cue, cues that he has, he nods. He like absolutely agrees with their messaging. Mm-hmm. So and when he does, or like he corrects them sometimes on something, some minor things. You can obviously see when he does disagree. And but like most of their messaging, he endorses, he agrees, and yeah, he propagates. So I don't think he ever brought anybody on his podcast with a dissenting opinion on on any of the topics like that I've followed on COVID, ivermectin, lab leak. Uh, yeah, I don't think like he never. I think he's just so comfortable in his echo chamber that he's just afraid, or I don't know. Well, on on. Uh, on the vaccines and stuff like in, in ivermectin, I bet he could get somebody like, I, like there's actually people in his certain, like in, who have been in his circles for a while who take the opposite position, who are you know very cordial. Like I bet he could have like Nicholas Christakis from Yale, who's very pro vaccine on. And I mean, he, I was very cordial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, no, I suggested. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying, yeah, I wasn't referencing you, but I'm, I'm saying today. like, yeah. yeah, like I'm saying that there's there's a whole bunch of people or, yeah, like I guess he could even had like because you guys were corresponding uh, before this article, obviously, on, on vaccines and stuff and Brett, Brett, Brett referenced that. So he could have had you on and you guys could have could have like had no, back, I actually had asked back and forth. to go yeah. on. I, I mean, I, I suggested I asked to have a podcast debating these things. I, I suggested it on several occasions. 
I suggested to have Luigi Warren on, who is the you know the the the, <laughs> the actual mRNA vaccine inventor. Well, okay, mRNA technology that Moderna uses. He's on the patent. I mean, he's one of the inventors, or probably the inventor of that technology that Moderna uses. And he's also very skeptical of mRNA vaccines. You know, how however ironically that might sound. But so we had some sort of debate with Luigi, and then he also wanted to go on Brett's podcast to pretty much defend Brett's position and I was willing to debate him and Brett and you know that like I, I several instances I emailed Brett and suggested it and he you know he said sounds like an interesting idea but never actually invited never organized that kind of debate so yeah I think he's just only promotes his opinions his views and doesn't want to be challenged on them which is again a huge red flag that well, I don't know, just a huge red flag for me. So, well, that that, that that's interesting. <coughs> like there, there hasn't been anything really out there you know, talking about that. So that's that's something to mull over. But like uh, what what I was going to push back on, like just a tiny bit, was like on the lab leak thing. Like God, <laughs> there is no way that he was going to get anybody. Like uh, uh, who? There's no way somebody at, at you know a year ago or even seven months ago who was, you know, anti-lab leak, who, who would talk to, to him or he, uh, on his show. Uh, I, that, 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 I, I, I doubt what happened. Why not? No, I'm sure. You, you don't think Angie, so? I'm sure Angie, our, our dearest friend, Angie Rasmussen, <laughs> who like is, I don't Nobody. think passed up any, any publicity opportunity ever <laughs> would pass up an invitation to Brett Weinstein's podcast. Okay, I'm sure enough. she would have, and or even know, Christian Anderson is just pretty cool debating now, and he's been on a number of podcasts, uh, so I'm sure he he possibly could have uh, agreed. And yeah, like it's it's not you know my place to tell Brett who he should invite or not, but like if he wanted to have a debate on it, I, I think he he could have reached out to those people. Anyway. And, but uh, I mean, this in this case, I mean, actually, I have proposed, I have suggested, I have asked, and he chose not to. So is he afraid of debating? Is he like not sure of his position, or is he just uh, I don't know what what his motivation is for not? I mean, he's he says so much that he's after the truth, and he's all about like dialectics, trying to like find out the truth he's not about debating and winning he's about finding out the truth well you, you sure can't find the truth if you only bring on people who agree with you so you know and what i'm worried about is this uh, you know to circle back to what i said at the very beginning of the of our talk here is that i worry that he would bring up the point of bad faith again is like like this has been yeah. this was my my initial concern with criticism. Yeah, it's just a cop out yeah, uh, uh, of of Brett. Well, I'm not sure if it's a cop out. I, I it might be, but I, I I think he he might be at the point where he's seeing this all the time. Do, do you know what I mean? Like like he's well, it could be a subcon. I mean, he could still believe in it, but like, like he's 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 interpreting so many things as as bad faith when they're yeah. not, and so there is a you know even if there's a really strong disagreement like it's not necessarily bad faith it's just a strong disagreement so I, i'm i'm worried that that's might be what he's interpreting and you know i, I had a conversation with a friend yesterday again i'm having these talks like uh, with what's going on with brett and like maybe it has something to do with 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 uh, like 
evergreen, not just evergreen, but like everything that happened with him following that, because he did get a, a massive amount of bad faith thrown at him. And so much that was thrown at him was just completely ridiculous, you know, at evergreen and, and the backlash to him talking about that situation and the stance that he took in which I agree with him, you know, a billion percent on, on where he stood on that whole affair. I, he was completely in the right and like the amount of sliming and maligning he got in, I don't know what a year or two or, or you know, with, with evergreen. And after that, that there was so much bad faith that it's like almost like hit something in his mind where he's on guard all the time and like finding bad faith in, in, in so many things, instead of just being like, I, I don't want to have, you know, this tough discussion with somebody as, as a cop out, maybe that's the case, but you know, I, I'm one, like uh, when I, when I had this conversation yesterday with a friend, like, Maybe that's what he's been doing because I, I because it started off with the last three years or so, just seeing him like bad faith, bad faith, bad faith, where it just be, it almost became has become a mantra. And like, I'm wondering if it if you know there, there's something more to that, and it ties back to Evergreen. Well, maybe I don't know. Yeah, or just you know, in the past, it worked with evergreen issues that you can always kind of dismiss criticism as oh it's bad faith because it's all about it's like not objective scientific debate it's more of a uh, I don't know subjective uh, ethical issues on, or social issues and yeah you were right that he was I think you know a lot of criticisms of him were I guess bad faith in terms of like they they didn't they weren't, you know, objective criticisms. But here, and he's so used to dismissing criticism as like bad faith, and if someone's like maybe not very nice to him or a little bit of challenging him in the in a vocal manner, like Claire and I have done, maybe to him, like automatically that signals all that bad faith, and he just know, just goes by into that default dismissive mode of dismissing something because of bad faith just because that phrase maybe is kind of meaningless now and he doesn't even like understand what it means. Yeah. I think there could be a, an attribute of that. Well, I, I think we, we, we've, we've, we, we've run this, this, uh, this yeah. topic through it's, it's due course and, uh, going maybe... for a record. Irish <laughs> <laughs> um, plus. Yeah. But, uh, is there is there any anything else that you you'd like to say about the, this the, you know this 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 topic as you as you've you've gotten involved with it and you know what you think might be happening with with Brett and Heather going forward like not 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 the communication between the two I I I would put you know a few bucks on that they're they're just going to try to ignore you as much as possible but. Um, like, what do you see going on with, with their level of discourse on these topics? And uh, do, do you have any other thoughts or comments on, you know, what what their reaction was to uh, your, your pushback on their claims? No, I have no idea what the reaction was. I, I think what, I mean, I already see them kind of backtrack a little bit on, on some of their most kind of outlandish claims. And I think just they're going to backtrack further and try to like pretend that, oh, we were never against vaccines. 
we were always like, just, you know, we should have the option of using ivermectin. Everybody should have the option. And like we were talking more about the countries that don't, don't have vaccines and, and they're just going to like try to soften and soften and soften that stance. And eventually, because they're going to be proven wrong. And eventually ivermectin is just going to fall off the radar, like hydroxychloroquine before it and so many other things have. And we're just going to forget about this debate ever happened. Vaccines will uh, hopefully eventually drive COVID out and hopefully without booster shots, although there's like really nothing wrong about booster shots as long as they're you know properly tested as the previous generation of vaccine has. But maybe we'll be able to like get away with uh, you know surviving and stopping COVID and eradicating it at least in, in, in the countries with the high vaccine of high vaccination rates that you know provide kind of the example for other countries to follow and eventually enough vaccines will be produced for the whole world uh, and distributed you know pretty much for free to to the people that ultimately will just you know completely eradicate covid and this issue will just be like an academic issue and uh, there are like five clinical trials like properly done registered randomized placebo controlled double blind clinical trials of ivermectin both prophylactic and treatment that hopefully will see results and they'll be more or less conclusive and i'm pretty sure they're going to demonstrate that you know ivermectin is all not that effective and definitely just not as effective as vaccines as prophylactic prophylaxis and it's just going to you know get off the radar and we'll live happily ever after and brett and heather they'll just find some other topic to monetize their youtube channel on and i don't know if they'll ever eat their hats on ivermectin being complete not an ineffective medication, but you know, maybe they will, or maybe they'll just ignore it and pretend that you know, well, that's kind of what we meant that we said that you know it should be used as, a, as an additional measure. Anyway, well, it'll be fun to to see what happens. <laughs> that's for cool. sure. All right, well, let's leave it there. Now you can find Yuri on Twitter. Thanks for listening to this episode. The music you hear on this show is from the Jeff Lapp Trio out of Montreal. Find them at jefflapp.com. Shout out to Tara for doing the graphics for COVID on air. A huge thanks to my editor Jeff at Bean Co. Studios in Regina, Saskatchewan. Please visit ncoronavirus.org for more information on ECV. Click on Join Us. Through that, you can volunteer with ECV. And you can subscribe to our newsletter, which is full of great information shot straight to your inbox from our delightful newsletter editor, Tracy. Also, please check out the blog at ECV. And hats off to Scott, our impeccable blog editor. You can find ECV on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter at ncovid19. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Farden. It's at M-R-F-A-R-D-E-N. Until next time.